You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live. Well, hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to Review and Preview. I'm your host, Tom Scavetta. Join alongside my co-host, Kyle Russo and Gabe Flayton. Gabe, you are not a guest. You are here for the full ride today. Thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to having you. Thank you for for giving me this opportunity to come on for the whole two hours. I I love talking about the Vikings. I'm wearing them right now, but we're not going to be talking a lot about them today. But we might be talking about the trades they've made with with the Bills. 100%. We're going to be talking a lot of New York sports news surrounding the Giants, Jets, and of course, the Buffalo Bills. Can't wait for it. Kyle, welcome as well. We are live 4 to 6 p.m. here on Facebook Live. Give us a follow, like, subscribe to this podcast. Follow us at Review and Preview Sports. Uh, we do not have James today. He just commented, commented in the comments section. Definitely looking forward to having him back next week. So you can subscribe to us on the anchor.fm slash review and preview. That is the audio version of our podcast. Any fan questions you guys have, feel free to uh, post them in the comments section. We'll get back to you and you can share this podcast as well on your page. Yes, we are interviewing Buffalo Bills beat reporter, Matt Perino. Matt Perino is a beat reporter of the Buffalo Bills for New York upstate.com and Syracuse.com. He'll join us at approximately 4.15 p.m. So you're going to definitely want to stay tuned and listen to that. We have a lot of good questions for him, uh, Gabe and Kyle. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to review and preview the other two New York sports teams. Well, not technically, but the Giants and the Jets. Uh, but before we get there, let's actually get to Ravens safety Earl Thomas, who was released by the team over the weekend. Uh, comments from his teammates included following the release. I saw this coming. The situation was getting worse. Most guys disliked this guy in the locker room. Most disliked guy in the locker room, etc. Uh, thoughts on Earl Thomas, guys? It's not a good look. It's not a good look. You never really heard these problems coming out of Seattle, you know, the tenure that he had there, and then obviously uh, Ben signing with the Baltimore Ravens. But apparently it was also a money issue, too, um, according to the Ravens organization, that it was going to be like a cap dump in a sense because they were going to have – some big up-and-coming contracts. They just added Calais Campbell's contract to their uh, boatload of cap space as well. Yeah, so it was coming, but you know, you heard that they had um, in, um, in training camp that what led up to this was a fight with other safety, Chuck Clark, I believe. Uh, Earl Thomas got into a heated thing. Earl Thomas was sent home, and uh, then this happened about a day or two later. So I guess, like his teammate said, it wasn't a surprise. You know, it's very unfortunate that he was released being uh, coming off a Pro Bowl caliber season. Uh, Only one year with the team. Speaking of safeties, let's go out west to the NFC West, where Buda Baker, safety of the Arizona Cardinals, is now the highest paid safety in the NFL. Got a four-year, $59 million contract extension earlier this week. I really like Buda Baker. He's a young kid. What are your guys' thoughts on him? He's a fantastic player, but he's not. He hasn't recorded one interception his entire career. Tackling machine, no doubt, but that's a lot of money to reset the safety market for a guy who is not recording an interception yet in his career. 
That's yeah, interesting. And, to, and yeah. sorry to cut you off, Tom, but to add to that, salary-wise, you're looking at a team now that has DeAndre Hopkins and Kenyon Drake on the offensive end. Putting investing a lot in your secondary right now isn't going to be putting. Uh, it's going to take a lot of money away from the big stars they now have on offense. Hundred percent. And another thing too, I um, you know I really thought about this was that Buda Baker's a guy he gets a lot of tackles, but. He hasn't, as Kyle, that was probably a not-so-fun fact that's factual, that he has not recorded an interception yet. But I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what he can do. So far, there's a lot of protocols in place for NFL teams due to COVID-19. And David Montgomery uh, actually today suffered a leg injury. He was carted off the field on non-contact drills. They've been doing a lot of non-contact drills because of it. Um, Definitely not good other injury updates out of New York. The Giants lose uh, safety Xavier McKinney, uh, rookie second-round draft pick, probably the steal of the second round due to a fractured foot. They'll be without him for multiple months. And Giants linebacker, reserve linebacker, well, he was a starter for majority of last year. David Mayo tore his meniscus. He can miss anywhere from about four weeks to multiple months. So that's definitely concerning the injuries piling up for the New York football Giants. It's not a good situation, especially when those were uh, two of the bright spots on defense coming in. David Mayo returning for a second season with the New York Giants uh, really led the pack as a lot of injuries started to pile up as the season progressed uh, in 2019. And then Xavier McKinney again, Tom, you said it, you know, as a Giants fan, personally, I was really looking forward to the tandem that was going to be put together by Patrick McCarthy, uh, Patrick Graham uh, in that second um, with that safety core and Jabril Peppers, along with rookie Xavier McKinney. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait, but uh, not good so far, especially with two uh, two weeks out from the beginning of the season. Totally. I think the injuries are definitely a concern for this team. The Giants have a young defense, and Mayo was a great player for them last year, probably their most consistent linebacker, especially after Connolly went down and now Xavier McKinney, which means, Gabe, we're probably going to see Julian Love step in as that second safety next to Jabril Peppers. Yeah, I was reading ESPN, uh, the Giants page on ESPN, and uh, their beat reporter was writing about Julian Love coming in and filling in really nicely at that safety spot. So they're really confident in him. Uh, Their secondary right now actually still looks pretty good, even without DeAndre Baker and McKinney. Uh, They still have Jabril Peppers, Bradbury, and then Ballantyne is going to have to come in big in only a second year. But they have some good pieces there, and they don't pay a lot at that position right now. They're only... They only have the 24th most expensive secondary. So it's really not a lot of money being paid. They could probably afford to get some more guys too. It's definitely going to be interesting for sure who these um, players are replaced by. I know Devontae Downs has impressed. So he's a guy that could potentially fill in for Dave Mayo as a reserve. Cam Brown as well, because it looks like the starters are probably going to be Martinez and Connolly interior wise. And then you have to look at, uh, backups. You still have Josiah Tofea from last year. You have Cam Brown, um, and they, they also have Devontae Downs. Remember, Carter Coughlin is there as well. He's probably more of an edge rusher for them. So it's going to be very interesting who steps up for them. Kyle, are you on board with Julian Love starting at safety for McKinney? It was so difficult for them to find a position for him last season. They, they moved into multiple different spots throughout the course of the season, and nothing really – at this point, he's almost like a positionless player. You know that he could play safety pretty well. He can't play corner that well. He can't cover that well. But, I mean, I guess he's going to have to do with the safety position because they don't have anybody else. Could the Giants sign Earl Thomas? 
I mean, they could, but you got to remember, this is a guy that's coming off a team that was, you know, very close to reaching the Super Bowl. He probably has high expectations and probably uh, a Super Bowl contending team will be out there for him. You've heard rumors about uh, the Cleveland Browns, potentially the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, The 49ers have been interested as well. So that would be nice kind of recreating the Legion of Boom in the uh, the San Francisco area, already having Richard Sherman there, now adding Earl Thomas. That would really help an already really strong defense in the 49ers. Um, but he's probably not going to look to go to a team in which is probably not going to be competing this year, probably going to be a mid-500 team at most. Uh, he's going to want to be on a team that's going to be in playoff contention, potentially Super Bowl contention. So my take on this is no, because the Giants have a lot of players coming up that are due for contracts, right? Evan Ingram is on his contract year. Saquon Barkley is going to be up in another year or two. So I think you need to save up money now and give it to those guys and protect your future investments rather than going out and signing Earl Thomas, who's caused locker room problems, especially with an old school mentality franchise like the New York Giants. They're probably not going to want to take a risk with somebody like that who's around 30 at this point when you have a young talent in McKinney and Peppers, I think signing Earl Thomas would be more of a very, very short-term so, uh, solution as where I think that um, their, um, what's McCallit? I think uh, Love has done a good job. He did a good job last year when he got some time. But thank you for the question, Jason. Really appreciate it. Keep shooting some questions at us. Matt Perino will join us in five minutes, the reporter of the Buffalo Bills. But until then, let's talk about the Jets. Um uh, so who steps up on this Jets roster? I'm not really sure. Uh, they lost C.J. Mosley due to an opt-out, and they lost Jamal Adams, who is now on the Seahawks. Who do you guys think potentially steps up for these guys? I know Jordan Jenkins stated that he's tired of losing. On paper, the Jets also have a revamped offensive line. Who steps up for this team? It's going to have to be – it's probably going to have to be the new tandem of the safety position, um, obviously having Marcus May already there, but – along with newly acquired Bradley McDougal. It's, it's going to have to be those two guys are really going to have to carry the weight uh, on this defense. I mean, we know what Greg Williams is capable of. Greg Williams has put out fantastic defenses before, straight from the Browns. Now, obviously, um, with the Jets, had, even though the defense, uh, the secondary was lacking at the cornerback position, they still had some decent pieces last year. You know, C.J. Mosley C.J. Mosley carried that uh, that. Um, that Jets team in the game, uh, the first game of the season against the Buffalo Bills. And then once he went out in that uh, end of third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, the team just completely collapsed. And then we saw that trend as games and games and weeks progressed. They still don't have two solid cornerbacks. That's, that's really their main problem right now is that they're going to be getting gashed off the line a lot. It's going to be very difficult for the cornerbacks in which they do have in place uh, to really carry the workload. I know they signed Pierre Desir, who was released by the Indianapolis Colts uh, this past offseason. But that's about it. They obviously let go of Tremaine Johnson after the massive contract in which they signed him. Did not necessarily pan out as well as they would like to. C.J. Mosley has opted out, Tom, like you alluded to. And Jamal Adams, one of the best young safeties in the league. Arguably a top three, if not the best safety in all of football when it comes to all-around type of talent and what she brings to the table covering the field aspect-wise. Um, that's going to be almost impossible to replace in terms of production just because of what he did in terms of tackles, interceptions, even able to get to the court, uh, the quarterback at some points in time. But it's going to have to be Marcus May, and it's going to have to be Bradley McDougal. Bradley McDougal was in a system in Seattle for a while in which he had a lot of success. So hopefully that could trend over to 
you know, going over to another system in the Jets organization with Greg Williams, who is uh, a well and established defensive coordinator. And hopefully it could be a nice transition for them. But that's really going to be the two guys that are going to have to really help this defense out a lot throughout the year. Personally, I think it's going to have to be Sam Darnold. I think Sam Darnold entering year three, you have a refurbished offensive line. I understand due to COVID, there's been limited contact with the guys up front, but you invested the, uh, what did they pick, ninth this year? And Mekhi Beck to ninth 11, or 10th? Right? Uh, they picked Mekhi Beck to number 11 overall. That is your future right there. In addition, they signed Connor McGovern in the offseason. These are guys that the Jets are going to have to keep. Um, so it's definitely going to be very interesting. Uh, to see how this all pans out. All right, guys. So uh, surprise, surprise. We're going to start this a couple of minutes early and add our guest for today. That is Matt Perino of the Buffalo Bills. We will get him up right now for you, Matt. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us very much. Uh, as um, we're alluding to, to the fans, you are a beat reporter for the Buffalo Bills for New York Upstate and Syracuse.com. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. No problem. So um, you've been working for the Bills now for the last couple of years. I wanted to ask you, uh, Mika Hyde, the safety, uh, stated today that this is the most competitive training camp that the Bills have had in years. Mm-hmm. What has the experience been like in camp this year, watching the players go at it with all the protocols in place? Um, it's been more of the same. Um, you know, Going into this year, there's a lot of expectations for this franchise. And hang on one second. Hey, go to the car, please. Sorry, we're getting a little golf lesson here. I thought I'd be done by now, but uh, I apologize about that. My no son worries. Pretty eager out on the uh, at the old driving range. Um, so what, what's been interesting is even with the addition of Stefan Diggs, I think that it the expectation was that it was going to take a little time for them to figure things out. So uh, early on, they've been, they've had a couple days where it's been tough sledding. I think early on in camp, especially on the lines, uh, more so the offensive line, but we're now almost two weeks in. And I thought we're coming off of Tuesday was their most, their best practice, uh, offensively, especially on the offensive line. So all good things from that perspective. Matt Kyle here. Question for you. The bills have recently announced that there will be no fans allowed to attend games for at least the first two home games of the season. Head coach Sean McDermott stated that it's ridiculous that some stadiums have fans and others do not. Do you think that having fans in attendance at any point during the season is possible at this state and time? He muted himself. Hold on. Hey, Matt, you, uh, I Can think you muted yourself. Yep, you're good. Yep. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I think that uh, right now New York has gone with a very safe and careful approach to things. Um, so I think that the fact that they've announced that the first two games are going to be without fans took nobody off uh, by surprise. I mean, that was kind of the expectation, at least early on. But as the season goes on and the numbers continue to, to stay down, I think that the majority of the fan base is going to be very eager to watch a team that's supposed to be a lot better this year. So um, do I anticipate the, the whole season? I probably would have told you like a month ago, no, I thought that fans would return at some point. Um, but I think it's all about seeing how this thing goes. New York is going to, um, you know, the legislation, the, the you know, the, 
the the people that are in charge of making these decisions, working with the bills, um, they're they're going to take a very safe approach to this. And you know, it's no surprise that some of the teams that are letting um, fans attend games are in some of the cities where you know maybe the numbers haven't been as well, where they've been a little bit more liberal with what they allow everybody to do. Um, and, as, and again, most experts think that there's going to be a second wave of this thing. And I think that that's, that's the biggest concern is like you get, you let, you have a couple games, you let some people into the stadiums and then all of a sudden uh, you have another breakout and who knows what that looks like if you let 13,000 people into a stadium and there's a breakout amongst that kind of group. So, you know, it's, it's like, we've never experienced this before. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Definitely. Definitely. So, Matt, my next question to you is Sean McDermott, the head coach of the Bills, recently earned the contract extension. How do you evaluate his coaching over the past three years, leading the Bills to two playoff appearances, and they had the second-best scoring defense last year? Well, I think that one of the cool things about Sean McDermott is the way that his players talk about him. Um, I've really picked up on that, and this is going to be my third year covering the team. And he's a real player's coach. He empowers his guys to come in, really run the room the way that they want to, as long as, you know, there's a, 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 a collective effort to win, which I think that they kind of go out and get guys that have that in their DNA, that competitiveness. I mean, even a guy like Stefan Diggs, who, you know, kind of got a little bit of a bad rap uh, in Minnesota for some of the outbursts that's, that he's had, you know, they, they bet on guys that are driven to win. And, and I think that a lot of the problems that Diggs had there in Minnesota is that he felt that, you know, he wasn't being put in a position to help the team win. And, you know, so we'll see what, how that kind of transpires. But it's, as far as McDermott goes, I mean, we're talking about a franchise guys that went to two, zero playoff games this century before they signed McDermott. So two and three years, it's a completely different world now. Um, and he's been the, one of the big reasons why obviously Brandon Bean has done a great job of putting together this roster. I mean, most experts would uh, agree that maybe a top five roster in the league with the biggest question being obviously a quarterback. So, you know, they've done a good job. They're, they're positioned to win. Now it's about kind of delivering on that. Hey Matt, it's Gabe here. Um, I have a question for you about Diggs. I, I, I agree with your comment about Diggs. He he definitely felt underappreciated in Minnesota because of the amount of talent that was just on his team. He he likes to be the guy. Uh, now that Diggs is the guy in Buffalo, and I, surprisingly, I looked at their now their cap space wise, they have the third most expensive receiving core in the NFL. So how does this trade affect their team? And do you think the trade with the Vikings was a positive one for Buffalo? Oh, without a doubt, because, I mean, you look at what happened with this offense last year and, you know, what was missing in Houston was a number one, a true number one wide receiver. You know, they put Duke Williams out in that role. They targeted him 10 times, the most of any single receiver in the wild card round of the playoffs last year. And, you know, he was a mostly unproven guy that kind of didn't get it done in that uh, scenario. So they, you go out there, you add a guy like Stefan Diggs to an already really good wide receiver room. And, you know, it's interesting because you, you bring up how expensive the group is. Well, that's kind of the genius of Brandon Bean because he structures these deals to where, you know, over the last two years, he's been adding and adding and adding, but giving himself a lot of maneuverability 
when you get into the second, the third, the fourth year. I mean, you can move on from John Brown next year. I think it's like a $1 million dead cap hit. And the, the talk of training camp has been their fourth-round draft pick, Gabe, Gabriel Davis out of UCF, who's just been absolutely tearing it up. Uh, he looks like the real deal in a very, um, you know, he probably would have been a second second or early third-round pick in most drafts, but this was such a, a, a wide receiver rich draft that uh, he fell to the bill and, and they were thrilled about it. They actually re- released a video of the team. Uh, the team did uh, during the uh, combine Brandon Bean and his, his pro uh, his college scouting staff watching Davis run his 40 and they were cheering in the press box when they, when he ran a little bit slower time than expected. So um, they had tons of talent uh, at the receiver position, but also now starting to stock up for future years. Yeah. Matt, staying on the offensive side of the ball, tight end Dawson Knox had a very quiet rookie season last year, starting 11 games. What are your expectations for him and the rest of the tight end room? Um, yeah, it's it, it's a very unproven group. I think that, that if you went position by position and you power rank them on the Bills uh, roster, tight end would probably be the one that, that ends up in the last spot. And with, with a lot of upside, I think what Dawson Knox did as a rookie – you know, there were signs of, uh, of real playmaking potential, but he also was top five in the league in drops, and that's got to get fixed. He's been working on it this offseason. Uh, he p- could potentially be a big weapon for Allen. You know, when teams are, are, are really zeroed in on uh, Diggs and Brown and, you know, the combination of Devin Singletary and Zach Moss in the backfield, you know, you could forget about Dawson Knox and all – most of the really elite, great offenses in this league have a weapon at tight end. And so Dawson Knox needs to assume that role. They have Tyler Croft in that tight end two spot. Uh, he's fine. Uh, he's somebody that I think can contribute. Uh, it's a contract year. They just reworked his deal. So they originally signed him with a three-year deal, but cut off the last and, and made this year a big one for him. So they, they think that they can ride with the two of those guys. They like Tommy Sweeney, seventh-round pick out of Boston College. Last year, he had a foot injury. He's missed all of training camp so far. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But, yeah, Dawson Knox is definitely interesting. I think I want to see more from him in year two before I'm ready to really start talking about him breaking out. Great. Uh, so I know the man on their center now, Josh Allen, uh, entering his third year in the league. He displayed significant improvement last year, in my opinion, from year one to year two. Uh, this kid obviously is a cannon for an arm and had nine rushing touchdowns, only nine picks led an offense that only had 19 turnovers as a whole. What are your expectations for Allen specifically in year three? Um, you know, I think that my expectations are that he leads this offense into the top, you know, 12. I mean, I, I think that there, there's potential to be a top 10 scoring offense, but you know, teams take them the identity of their head coach in a lot of situations. And I think that, What's going on here the last couple of years, and I know a lot of you know Bills fans have had issues with Brian Dable. I think the you know the the run heavy you know safe play style calling uh, of this team kind of emanates from Sean McDermott. So we'll see if he allows him to you know you know take off the baby gloves a little bit, let him be more uh, of a quarterback and, and, and really roll the ball and, and try to find some more consistency. That's what I think is missing from Allen's game. There's these, these peaks and valleys. And I feel like so many times we go through quarters sometimes where 
you know, he's just struggling to find any type of rhythm. Once he finds a rhythm, he's one of the most dangerous weapons in the league. I mean, he scored 29 touchdowns last year, rushing and receiving uh, split. Uh, only five players in the league scored more. So I think that he's got to be more consistent and he has to continue to take care of the football because that's where he really grew. I think the most last year is put put, put away that hero ball. Uh, it reemerged a little bit in the Houston game, but they think that as he's continued to grow, they can continue to kind of well uh, those kind of traits. But, you know, once a gunslinger, always a gunslinger. So I think he's always going to have a little bit of that to his game. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I just think he needs to develop and grow and be a little bit more responsible with the ball at times. I know um, Allen also, too. Um, I know he was a false – he had a false positive test, right? Didn't he miss practice uh, over the weekend? Yeah, he missed on Sunday. Uh, the false positive was on Saturday. One of, uh, I think, almost 100 players – you know, dealing with that lab issue in New Jersey. Uh, but he was back. He said it was a weird situation, but it was also a cool thing that the team can kind of go through the fire drill of what it's going to be like when you're without one of your stars, you know, and it was just practice. But, you know, there's there could be a situation where teams have to deal with that this year. So to go through the process of that, I think, might be helpful. Matt, question for you. You brought it up before the, uh, the recently drafted third-round running back at Utah, Zach Moss. He was rated the highest rookie. He got the highest grade out of any rookie running back with, I believe, a 91.3 on pro football focus. Talk about what the combination, the, the two-punch combo of Devin Singletary and Zach Moss out of the backfield can be for opposing defenses come this season. Yeah, he's been um, – Zach Moss has looked like the real deal in training camp too. Uh, you know, he had a, a couple really nice days last week, um, you know, I, it was kind of up in the air in terms of how much we were going to see him, you know, where we were going to see him. And obviously with, you know, the bills have uh, kind of mandated that, you know, where players line up and how, you know, what rep counts and first team, second team reps, all that. We can't really report on that, but you know, when Zach Moss had the ball in his hands, whether it be out of the backfield running it or catching it, he's, he's been great. And I think that, he, he offers a little bit different flavor than what Devin Singletary does. I think Devin Singletary, although he's added some muscle, is more of that shifty, make-you-miss kind of back who actually, for as good as he, at, as, good as, he is as like a, you know, a back that can make you miss, he also, you know, he's able to bounce off tackles. Like, I'm so surprised. That's something I wasn't expecting uh, when he came into the league last year. And Moss... He doesn't need to bounce off tackles because he just bulldozes guys. Like he, he's a he's a really physical runner. He seeks out contact already this year. Uh, in you know a week and a half, I've I've noticed at least three plays where he's put his helmet on a defender that was kind of coming to the box and tackle him. So um, it, it's it's a fun young combo. I think both of them know it's a two back league. Devin Singletary was hurt last year. Zach Moss was hurt last year. So they both play pretty physical. And I think having that kind of depth. They still have TJ Yeldon too, who could be that veteran uh, depth piece that, you know, in case one of those guys goes on, goes down, can fill in pretty nicely. That's, uh, go ahead. No, Tom, you go. You go. I was going to say we actually have a question out of the comments section from Jason. Uh, any word on stadium naming rights? Um, Barstool Stadium is probably out, uh, but yeah, that, right now it's Bill Stadium. Um, I, I think it's like a tough, like economical climate right now to go out and sell a multi-million dollar a year uh, naming rights deal, especially in a market like a like the lower 
uh, market like Buffalo. So I, I could see them going through the whole season with the name uh, Bill Stadium. Um, and, and then we'll see where it goes from there. But there's some there's some company. I mean, I know everybody wanted Wegmans, which is a big uh, grocer brand out here. Uh, I think they said that they're not interested. But, yeah, we'll see where that goes. It's um, I think it's going to be Bill Stadium for at least this season, though. Now, bringing it back to the draft, Matt, in the second round, the Buffalo Bills selected A.J. Epineza, uh, who's arguably the steal of the entire draft. What will he do in this defense as a rookie to help Buffalo maintain that top status uh, as one of the most dominant defenses in the entire NFL? I think the the biggest thing for A.J. is that he's not going to be asked to do too much. I mean, there, there's not, they, they're not going to have to rely on him for any type of, uh, you know, large percentage of snaps or even, you know, a huge amount of production because their starters, you know, in some way, shape or form are going to be Trent Murphy or not Trent Murphy, um, Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison. I mean, Addison's coming over from Carolina four straight seasons of nine or more sacks. Um, so whatever role that AJ Epinesa ends up playing, it's going to be in that rotation. And I think that he's going to be any, any issues that he runs into, he's going to be able to be, you know, safeguarded a little bit because of the talent around him, not only on the, on the edge, but what the bills have on the interior. So I think that he's looked good. He's looked comfortable. Uh, I like to see him in some live action to see, you know, how he holds up. And, um, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about you know, he, he dropped in the, in, the, in, the, in the draft because of some some bad combine numbers. The dude, you see him out on the field, he's just absolutely titanic. Like, he's huge. So I'm not surprised that he wasn't the most agile and um, super fast guy uh, at the combine because he's just a big body. I think he's going to be a problem. He's got some versatility to flip inside. He said he played he play all four positions. Uh, that's, that, that's, what the, that's what these guys like. John McDermott, Leslie Frazier. They want versatility. So depending on what happens in a game or, you know, from week to week, they have options. When they have options, that's what they love. Yeah, nobody loves their defensive line more than Buffalo. They they have invested so much money and they have so much, ro- like, rotation-wise, like similar to what the Vikings had a year ago with Everson Griffin, Daniel Hunter. Uh, they've, they've always had a rotation like that. So Ed Oliver, who was last year's first-round pick, where, what do you expect from him? Is he going to get more uh, play time this year? He only had seven starts a year ago. Yeah, he, he, he earned the job out of camp. And then it just so happened that Jordan Phillips, uh, who has since left the team via free agency to Phoenix, or to Arizona, um, he just was playing better. And he, t- he took the starting job from him early in the season. But I think all expectations are that Ed Oliver is going to be uh, a pretty different player, a more consistent player. We saw the upside. If you if you caught the Dallas game on Thanksgiving, Oliver was a one-man show in that game. I think two sacks, a pass breakup, a forced fumble, uh, a couple tackles for a loss. You know, that that's what the Bills drafted him ninth overall to be, that just chaotic, uh, chaos-causing force in the middle of their defensive line. And, you know, he's, he's a guy that I think is also going to benefit – from a Mario Addison, a Quentin Jefferson uh, that, is, that came over from Seattle. Uh, the more talent that you add on the line, I think the better for everybody involved. And, and for Oliver, uh, he's going he's, he's gonna to be a menacing force, I think. He's, um, he's my guy uh, that I've picked to be like kind of that breakout superstar this year. I think Tremaine Edmonds is already kind of there. You could go with him too, 
but he was a pro bowler last year. So I thought last year was kind of his breakout year, but he could break out even more this year. I think he's going to put up Luke Keekley type all pro numbers in 2020. Matt, I think you uh, brought up a pretty good point, too. It'll be interesting because Star Latule opted out as well. So I think they'll probably rely more on Ed Oliver uh, in the trenches there. Now, you just mentioned Tremaine Edmonds. They have you know another good young linebacker, Matt Milano. And then they also sign A.J. Klein and another pro bowler cornerback, of course, in Tredavious White with those six interceptions. So obviously they're a loaded defense. What impresses you the most out of those guys? Um, how well they play together and how important like every piece is like, you know, we talked to Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer this week and, you know, they were both asked about, you know, how they built their chemistry over the years and the way that they're able to kind of disguise their coverages that really is almost like the, you know, they're very humble guys. So they don't want to sit there and take all the credit, but that safety do on what they're able to take away down the field is, is a big reason why, not only is this defense so good, but Tredavious White has been so good. Um, but I think that everywhere you look on this defense, everybody's bought into their role. Um, when he needs to be, when he's asked to be, Tredavious White is about as locked down a shutdown corner in this that, that there is in the league, and that's great to have. Um, and, you know, he's the kind of guy that, you know, a great locker room guy that, you know, who's going to end up probably getting 20 million a season and he's going to deserve it. And that's their whole model. They want to draft, develop, and then reward their guys. And we saw it earlier this offseason. Uh, Deion Dawkins was extended at left tackle four year uh, extension. And that's something that, you know, Brandon Bean said when they got here, that's the goal. Like build a roster where you got to start re signing your own guys. And they're going to have Matt Milano to deal with next year. He's going to he's going to come off uh, a free agent in the offseason. And then you're looking down the barrel at a big Tredavious White extension, a Josh Allen possibly extension, depending on he how he continues to evolve. And Tremaine Edmonds as well is going to get top tier money. Um, so there's a lot of like, you know, the roster building aspect of this thing is going to get real interesting over the next two years. And uh, it's a big reason why I think that, you know, a guy like Trent Mur- Murphy, who I think could be a real good piece on their defensive line rotation had two sacks against Houston in the playoff game last year. You know, they could save $8 million and roll that over to next year to help with the Milano deal and other things that they want to do. So there's some some decisions to be made and some financial ramifications depending on which way they go. Yeah. uh, Adding to that with the defensive end, Josh Norman, he got signed to a one-year deal. Is he there more for like mentoring for the the starters who are very young and going to be due for big buddy, or is he expected to get a lot of reps this year? I mean, I think that going into camp, the, I, the feeling I got from the organization, the people I talked to was that he was, you know, kind of a leading contender to win that cornerback two job, but all Levi Wallace has done all camp has continued to do what he's done the last two years. And that's, you know, been super solid, made, made some plays and you know, what's in the last two years has earned him the starting job. So Josh Norman uh, dinged his hamstring in practice a couple days ago. He's been out ever since, and he's kind of out indefinitely, and Sean McDermott has not wanted to uh, get into when they expect him to be back. So uh, the longer he's out, the tougher it's going to be for him to get back in the mix. But he's a veteran presence. I think that he's a guy that they think that still has good football left in him. That's to be That remains to be seen. 
Uh, but as long as he can get back and get healthy, I think he'll he'll still he'll see the field. Matt, with Tom Brady moving out of the AFC East, obviously uh, now playing quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, how do you think the Patriots and the Bills will stack up against each other, specifically on the defensive side of the ball? Um, you broke up a little bit there. Say that one one more time. Obviously, with Tom Brady now moving to Tampa, obviously now the starting quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, how do you think the Patriots and the Bills will now stack up against each other on the defensive side of the ball? Yeah, well, that's something that I don't think enough people are talking about. The Patriots, yeah, they lost Tom Brady. And, you know, I think that offense was a little bit anemic at times last year, even with Brady. They don't have a lot of skill players, you know, at at receiver, tight end. You know, that offense that has been so good over the years, they're they're depleted. They're a completely different unit. And I feel like Cam Newton's walking into a tough situation there. But on the defensive side, without Kyle Van Noy and Jamie Collins, who really – you know, talking about the front seven, I mean, those were two of the leading guys. They lost Danny Shelton on the interior as well. You know, I don't, I don't know, really know who's bringing the pass rusher them this year. And they still have that, you know, super elite secondary that seems to be even getting even better um, with, with, with guys that are developing in that system. But I just don't know how the Patriots are going to win games and score enough points and uh, get pressure on the quarterback. Like, you know, those are all questions that remain. So I think the Bills stack up well. I mean, I'm picking the Bills to win the AFC East. I, I think there's a really good chance that depending on how, you know, what what happens at quarterback and if Tua develops, I think the Dolphins could be the second best team in this division. As crazy as that sounds, I think we could really be talking about that in December. I know Bill Belichick's still there and the, 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 the dynasty is the dynasty, but it looks a lot different now. And we're still not 100% sure that Cam Newton is, is still the same guy. Number one and number two, how comfortable he's going to be in the first year in a whole new system with you know uh, really a sh- not a lot of runway to get ready to, uh, for this season. I think this thing's going to hit him pretty quickly. Uh, if things go south, I think it could be a real tough year for the Patriots. Matt, just a couple more here. Um, so I know you talked about earlier the tight ends are young, and that's probably one of the more underdeveloped areas of the roster at the moment due to their youth. They also brought in Brian Winters, an offensive lineman. I know the offensive line, uh, he's going to be new. I know they have Mitch Morse as well. How do you feel about the offensive line? Do you think that's one of the weaker links of the roster, or, is, or are they improving over time? Um, I wouldn't call it a weak link. I think it's a unit that was solid last year. It was, it was definitely better than 2018, where they were among the worst in the league. Um, they could always be better, and I think that you know you paid your left tackle, so you really need him to not only continue to to be the guy that he was last year, uh, took a significant jump from his sophomore season, but you want him to probably even be better. You're paying him as a top five left tackle. You want him to really hold up, especially in key moments and key games. Uh, and then from there, you you rewarded Quentin Spain with a three year deal. You probably want him to take another step. But I think the the coolest thing about what they're doing on the offensive line is. They brought brought everybody back. So, you know, this was a brand new unit with four new starters last year. There's a lot of continuity there now. There's there's familiarity. So you expect just from that alone that they, they should be a little bit better. Um, you know, I I think that their strength, they got a lot of athletic guys that can pull and block and get out and run a little bit. And with a running quarterback like Josh Allen, you need those kind of guys. And they did a lot of that last year. I think one of the biggest moments of the year was when Mitch Morris – Missed on that block along with Austin Knox that could have, you know, you know, got Josh Allen popped in the Houston game in the fourth quarter. I think he might have had a concussion. 
uh, Targetel. Uh, but he didn't look like the same guy after that, Josh. He looked kind of like just deer in the headlights. And so I think that, you know, with familiarity, I think that they'll be better. I think that that could lead to, you know, better things for Josh too. I agree. I think that's a good point you bring up there for sure. And I know the kicker competition, it's been fun to investigate. Uh, Steven it's all Couch. about that bass, man. It's all about yeah. the Tyler bass. What have, what have you seen from him so far in training camp? I got to ask you. I mean, I know he's gotten raving reviews. Yeah, he's uh, it's fluctuating day by day. Like, uh, he started off, the first real competition they had was they each got five kicks one day, and he buried all of his 50-yarders, and Stephen Houchkin missed three. Uh, but then he came back, and he missed a 50-yarder earlier this week, and then Hauschka came back with a perfect day and drilled his 50-yarder. So uh, Bass had a nice day yesterday. They're going to go back in the stadium tomorrow for a scrimmage, so we'll get another look at this again. But he's just got a, he's just got a live leg, man. I mean, he's got – he, he could probably hit a 70 yarder in, in a game, you know, and he's just got that kind of power, but it's, do you trust him, you know, in big moments, do you trust him to be consistent in that 40 to 49 yard range? Uh, that's a big question, but I, I think they drafted him for a reason and I think they like him. Gabe and Kyle, any final thoughts for Matt? No, Matt, just want to thank you for personally taking time out of your day to conduct this interview with us. No Some problem. great insight on the Buffalo yeah, yeah. Bills. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. I, I enjoy talking about digs. I'm going to miss him in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, man. People always ask me, like, I can't, what do you think about that trade? Like, uh, the Bills gave up a lot. I mean, like, yeah, hey, man, if you get a bona fide top five receiver in the NFL and all you had to give up was a 25th overall pick, yeah. I like Justin Jefferson a lot, but I don't think he's got that kind of upside. So we'll see. No, no, it's, 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 it's an interesting it's a better version. Yeah, I agree. Thanks, Matt, guys. We Take care. The insight. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that was Matt Perino, beat reporter of the Buffalo Bills. We thank him for joining us. And now, uh, man, you know what? Before we get to NBA, actually, I got to say, Buffalo really seems to be a team that's on the fence of becoming a consistent playoff team every single year. Their defense is loaded. It's a top caliber defense in the league. I'm really excited to see what the Buffalo Bills put out on the field this year. Yeah, no, they're definitely going to be a team, you know, potentially that can – I don't want to say dynasty, but rule of division for the next three, five years, potentially, you know, they keep the main core together, obviously now adding digs uh, to that drafting Zach Moss. So that tandem, that two punch combo of Zach Moss and Devin Singletary in the backfield, it's going to be definitely an entertaining team to watch in the years to come for sure. Yeah. And they've been drafting really well over the last few years. They've come to the realization that most talent doesn't want to sign in the off season to Buffalo. So they've, taking a, a strong stance of just getting as many good draft picks and then skill player wise, making trades to get Stefan Diggs, who otherwise probably would not have gone to Buffalo uh, in free agency. And they just have so much talent all around. And I could see them becoming like what Kai was saying, a dynasty, because if you play in the AFC East and you see the competition that's there, you would love to play in Buffalo right now. It looks like two easy wins all across the board for them in that division. 100%. Uh, All right, so let's get some NBA uh, playoffs talk. So the Lakers and the Trailblazers uh, will play game five tonight, and the Lakers currently lead that series three to one. I know the Blazers actually took a one-nothing lead in this this series, but the Lakers' star players, they're now playing like the star players that they are, and they've been able to do a really good job 
these last three games, I think of note really what stood out most to me was game four, Kobe Bryant day. The Lakers had, I believe it was 80 points and a half as Gabe put on the script. Um, and also they took a 24 to eight lead. So, you know, it was definitely, definitely good to see for the Lakers franchise and uh, you know, all the Kobe Bryant fans out there. His presence was definitely felt for sure. But, you know, we talked about it last week and, you know, should the Lakers be worried? Uh, should the fan base be worried about, you know, the, the trailblazers taking a one nothing lead and it's it's the lebron factor it's he's he's a light switch and you know they they turned on for him they clicked in his brain and he's having these unbelievable unbelievable offensive as well as team performances passing the ball with his assist numbers rebounding the ball being aggressive on defense as well they, they they've turned into that team and now now for game five tonight is not some good news for the portland trailblazers but Missing their star point guard Damian Lillard in a elimination game situation is not not the best of outcomes, and you know is uh, probably not going to work out in their favor either. Uh, going into this game tonight, losing him is huge. That's the that's the heart and soul of the team. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think Damian Lillard has been pretty good the whole series. I know he had an off night. I think it was in what do we have here? I think it was game. No, it was game two. He only had 16 points. And then they, of course, they lost Zach Collins in game two as well. He's going to have left ankle surgery. So that hurts them a little bit. Wayne Gabriel's had to play in his uh, his place. So it's definitely interesting because LeBron and AD didn't have a good start to the series. LeBron's been kind of quiet in these playoffs. He's had the games where he's played like LeBron, but he's also had these other games where he's not putting up LeBron numbers, which... I don't know if that's a bubble effect, if it's um, an age. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what it is. I think it's just a matter of, you know, we've seen this in the past um, where they've played against other teams. Uh, LeBron has never lost on the first round, and that's because, you know, I'm not, this is not to his character at all, but it almost seems like he doesn't, he doesn't turn it on until, like, the second round, the third round, uh, the Eastern Conference Finals now, uh, the Western Conference Finals, and then the championship, obviously. He takes the first two rounds kind of lightly unless they're in an elimination type of situation. And we saw that where, you know, they got embarrassed in game one, just not being able to shoot the ball efficiently whatsoever and then just did enough to help the team win in game two. And then at one point in the last game, I believe they had, um, a, I think it might have been a 50-point lead at one point or a 40-point lead at one point against the Blazers in their last game. So it's, it's just a matter of, you know, being aggressive and, and doing what counts to help your team get the W at the end of the day. Definitely. Yeah, when I watch the Lakers play, it just looks so effortless. LeBron doesn't try. There was a point in the game where he just came, like the Blazers had to try really hard. They were down 25 in the second quarter. And Damian, or Damian Lillard and McCollum, they try so hard to get baskets on that team. They have to work really hard. They're short. They're, they're always going through a defender who's taller than them, going through double teams, triple teams, just to get a basket. They scored a basket. On the other end, LeBron just dribbles up nonchalant and pulls up from 40 feet. And just any momentum the Blazers tried to get that game, the Lakers shut it down so quick. And they didn't really have to try to do it. 100%. I think, too, another thing, I really like the Black Mamba uniforms they had in Game 4. But oh, yeah. You know, I've got to say, it just seems like the Lakers have taken full control of this series. And to make matters worse, Damian Lillard will miss game five tonight with a sprained knee. Um, so that is not 
good at all. And uh, Gabe, I think you might have brought this up. Uh, AD has scored a combined 60 points in games two and three, although um, he did have, uh, I think he had a back spasms issue or something. Something happened to him, but I think he is going to play tonight in game five. Yeah, and they need, and they need him going forward. He's his health is is huge, and back spasm sounds more serious than what he's saying it is. So hopefully it doesn't flare up because this game he really can't afford to get hurt in this game in in a situation where they know they're probably going to win the series. Totally. I mean, look, it's it's a shame Portland's not at a hundred percent, but I think the Lakers were probably going to win this series regardless. I just think Portland and have their full lineup the whole season, which is why they're in the situation that they are in now. I think if Nurkic, Collins, and Rodney Hood were all available to this team, I think they'd be in a much better spot. They'd be like in that anywhere between that three to six seed range, I think. Personally, um, I don't like what I've seen out of Denver, but we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, Clippers, Mavericks. They uh, The Clippers lead the series three to two. I know... L.A. was up one nothing, and then Dallas, they even the series. The Mavericks were starting Max Kleber at center. I know they made a couple of lineup changes throughout the series. And then game three. We're going to talk about game three because we know the scuffle that occurred between Montrezl Harrell and Luka Doncic. And both got technical fouls. I know the announcer was saying Montrezl shouldn't have gotten a technical foul, but from what he said, uh, he probably should have. Because the refs can hear things that the rest of us can't that that are going on the court, which is why fans always have this solemn reaction. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why is this thing called? Why is it not? And, you know, it's you actually put yourself in that situation. It's very much different in person live than it is watching it on a TV screen. Just my opinion. But I definitely think uh, both players were a little antsy. And I think the refs made the right call. Um, I know Harold later apologized to Doncic, but overall, game three wasn't good for Luka. I think this was so uh, solely out of frustration. He only scored 13, and Kawhi went off. So, um, you know, it was definitely interesting because then in game four, they come back without Kristaps Porzingis. They come back, and Luka just goes off. I think he probably had the best performance that night with the um, hit like a 28-foot three-point there. How critical is Luka Doncic to this team? Because quite frankly, he's emerging into a top five to six talent before our very own eyes. I mean, he's the, you know, when he came into the league, you know, his, his evaluation, his player, uh, his player resemblance, they, they compared him to LeBron because of what he could do, how he's, I believe he's six foot seven and he runs the point and he's a floor general. He he his assist numbers are fantastic. His rebound numbers are fantastic. He could he could drop a forty two point game like it's nothing. Hit a clutch shot, uh, clutch shot like it's nothing. Luke is definitely a major factor in the progression of this team for sure. You know, as we transition into last night's game, Kristaps Porzingis is also a major factor in the success in which the Mavericks will have in the foreseen future. When he plays, they look like a dominant competing team. You know, they have their array of lesser names around them tim hardaway jr also a fantastic player seth curry as well off the bench for them three-point sniper no doubt about it maxi kleber uh dorian finney smith also starting in that lineup for them as well but chris Stapps and luca combined that can shut down a team that's what we saw against these this clippers team you know 
aside from the fact that Paul George wasn't necessarily at that point, uh, you know, we talked about it last night, how uh, his mind wasn't in the bubble yet. You know, this was his first real coming out game in which he was performing up to that Paul George level that we all know and love, but he wasn't having that for the first three, four games of the season uh, series. So Chris Porzingis being in there is huge, and he's going to wind up missing uh, game five, which is uh, game six, which is not going to be uh, – he missed game five. Excuse me. He missed game five, and that's where we saw that presence lack, you know, big body in there, a guy who could pull up from three. He could get his own shot at a seven-foot-three height. Uh, mismatch and nightmare, no doubt about it. And they winded up at one point in the game, they were losing by 50 points. And because Luca can't carry the team by himself, but you know, we'll see what happens. Hopefully he's healthy for game six, but we'll see what happens. Gabe, I want to bring up a point with you back to the Luka Doncic shot. Um, I don't know if you got to see it live, but um, not to mention he splashed it over Reggie Jackson, who's a quality defender. You know, the Clippers are a very good team when it comes to defense. And as the clock is expiring too, this kid's not even 21 years old yet, Gabe. What what could possibly be going through uh, Luka Doncic's mind as that shot's going up at such a young age, too, being so clutch the way he is? I think he's done that shot probably a million times. This step back from the left elbow uh, behind the three-point arc, the left wing is his It's his sweet spot, and it's always off a step back. It's, it's almost like he doesn't practice. He always practices with that step back, and it's unstoppable. He could be three feet behind uh, in front of a defender and he'll still do the step back with like a lots of room in front of him. He just loves the step back. And it's such a, it's a shot that not a lot of people have in their repertoire. Um, James Harden has it too. And he's also a phenomenal player. It's an unstoppable shot and he's six, seven, but he could be six, four and get away with these things because of how much separation he gets. Uh, What was going through his mind was he looks so humble. I don't think he, he doesn't seem like a guy who loves the attention that much, but he definitely takes things seriously. He's a really he's a really hard worker just from looking at him. He he wants a championship, but I don't think that Mavs team can give him give him what he wants, at least right now. I think too what was very impressive, he also had seventeen rebounds in this game. So he's not yeah. just concerned about scoring, he's concerned about filling up the stat sheet in all these different departments. Um, overall, I think Doncic is a future MVP in this league uh maybe not right now maybe in like five or six years but his level up is going quicker than a lot of people are expecting um game five again no porzingis and the clippers just come back and mutilate the mavericks 154 to 111 this was the team record for uh playoff points in a game for la and then Kawhi and pg 13 combined for 67 points and then the Clippers shoot 63% behind the three-point arc. Talk about that and all their uh, three-point lethal shooters. Well, for one, it was, you know, Paul George. He felt and looked comfortable. He hit, he shot four of eight on the three-point line. He just, he looked comfortable. He wasn't forcing up shots like we saw in these first four games. He was finding his own shot. Uh, and when he couldn't find a shot, you saw that he was driving to the lane and, what did that lead to? It led to fouls and which got him to the line. He's a great free throw shooter and he shot seven for seven from the free throw line. That's his game. And, you know, you talk about the three point shooters as well, Tom, you know, you saw, uh, you saw Reggie Jackson hit a couple threes. Uh, Patrick Patterson hit a couple threes for them as well. Um, 
who else? Uh, is it Markeith or is it Marcus Morris? I always mess up Marcus. the brothers. Marcus Morris on the Clippers hit about four threes, I believe, as well. They just seemed to be clicking on all cylinders last night, uh, the Clippers, and you know, led by a, a coach in Doc Rivers. We know what established coach that he is in this league, one of the top coaches in the league, championship-caliber coach uh, with a championship-caliber team behind him. This team, when they're hot, they could, you know, my prediction in the beginning of the year was going to be that the L.A. Clippers were going to reach the NBA Finals, and I believe that they were going to win, and I still have that faith and trust. I'm going to stick by my pick and stand by my pick, but I got I to gotta see what Paul George is doing. He's got to be more consistent. If he keeps on putting up numbers like that, you know, it won't be a hard feat, you know, as hard as we might have seen in the first four games of the series. I just think it's going to be interesting. Game six is supposed to be tomorrow night at 9 p.m. We'll see because there's a lot of, um, you know, the whole thing around the boycotting right now, which, I mean, we'll get to that later on. But anyway, let's get to the Nuggets and the Jazz. Utah surprisingly leads the series 3-2, to two, a team that is without Boyan Bogdanovich. And they were without Mike Conley for a game or two in this series. So yeah. Utah was up three to one. Denver survived last night to live another day. The series is now three to two. Uh, Denver was up one nothing in this series, which is why I think it's really interesting now that Utah's ahead. Because usually, when the better team is up one nothing and you're down guys in your starting lineup, Utah's been mixing and matching guys, and so has Denver. I think they started the series out with Craig and Porter Jr. as the starters, and now. Over the last couple of games, I believe it's been Monte Morris and um, one one other person, uh, Jeremy Grant. That's who it is for the Nuggets. But what I found really interesting is the play of Jordan Clarkson, right? In game two, he comes off. He scores 26 points off the bench. Um, again, with no Mike Conley, this guy's getting an opportunity to play more minutes off the bench. And I, I think he was great. I think these guys have stepped up um, to the table when they've had to. And then in game three, we saw a similar feat. They held Denver to 87 points. That just doesn't happen unless you're doing something to outmatch them. And what they did was I think they used a competitive strategy as far as containing Nikola Jokic to 15 points, which is something I think the Milwaukee Bucks should take notice to when trying to uh, contain Vukovic in their series because both of them have very similar games. I think Jokic is a slightly better shooter. But anyway, uh, Conley comes back, scores 27 points, splashes seven threes, and then George's Niang only uh, had 16 points in just 15 minutes. Talk about the play of the role players on this Utah team and what they've done to gain that edge in this series. They've just come up key for the Utah Jazz in this in this playoff series. They've come up really key. You know, they lost Tom, as you alluded to, uh, a 20 point scorer and. Bogdanovich, and that's a major, major loss to the starting lineup. They have kind of implemented Joe Ingles back into that starting role, but he hasn't shot as well as they could have hoped for. But Donovan Mitchell has really carried the load along with Rudy Gobert. But these bench pieces that you're alluding to, Georges Niang, Jordan Clarkson, they've been, uh, well, at least for Clarkson, I know, he's been averaging about 15 points off the bench in this series, which has really helped him out tremendously to gain that lead on the Jazz, as you alluded to earlier, Denver being the better team, having the one-up lead uh, in the series to win game one and then kind of, in a sense, fall apart the way they did. You know, even last night's game, they, they managed to come away with a win, but Utah, at one point in the game, I believe, had as big as a 13-point lead on this Denver team. And uh, that fourth quarter is what really put the nail in the coffin for the Jazz. But, you know, it's, it's going to be a really interesting game six. 
to see what happens, especially because, you know, not a lot of people are talking about it. The Denver Nuggets, they've missed some key pieces in their lineup offensively. Will Barton has not played a single game in the bubble. He's been averaging 15 points a game for them this season. That's a major contributor. Gary Harris as well has not played a game as well, even though he only scores about 10 points a game. They're still missing that contribution on offense. You alluded to the fact that they've had to start guys like Michael Porter Jr., who are, who, who just been getting his feet wet in the NBA prior to the uh, COVID outbreak, and he's starting in your playoff bubble lineup, in your starting lineup. Uh, not that he's been bad, but kind of had to transition back into that bench role. But they've kind of taken a hit on offense, and that's what we've seen these past couple games. They have to play this Jazz team extremely well on defense if they want to come out of this series, especially because they they're, they're the ones down two games. The Jazz only need one win. Gabe, uh, I want to get to you here. So it's interesting because, right, you're thinking Bogdanovich is a higher-profile player that Jazz are missing, but everyone forgets that the Nuggets are also missing players too, like the ones Kyle just mentioned, Will Barton and Gary Harris. Uh, in Game 4, though, Jamal Murray seemed to defy the odds, scoring 50 points, uh, even though Denver lost by, uh, by two. He was really great making nine threes. How do you think he is able to get Denver back into this series? As I think we might have lost Gabe there. He got disconnected. Uh, so he'll be back in a couple of minutes. Kyle, actually, I'll throw that to you then. Jamal Murray had 50 points in game four. Then Donovan Mitchell came back with 51. But what does Jamal Murray need to do to uh get this team back up and running if they're going to advance. He really needs to, I'm not going to say put up the numbers he's been putting up. I'm not going to expect the guy to drop 50 points or 42 points every single night, but he needs to carry the load offensively for this Denver team since they're missing such big contributors on the offensive side of the ball. That's 25 points per game that they're missing in that Denver Nuggets lineup, and you can't rely, even though he's been great, you can't rely on Michael Porter Jr. to be your lead scorer off the bench, your six-man for the team. Like I alluded to earlier, he's only played in a few NBA games. He's going to be your main contributor off the bench. You can't rely on that. Nikola Jokic as well. Even though you know he has that versatile aspect where he could shoot the ball, I can't say confidently that you can rely on him to score 30 points a night. You can, you can rely on him to be a defensive aspect in the paint and get a bunch of rebounds, but 30 points a night, you can't rely on that. But from your point guard, Jamal Murray, you need him to spread the ball efficiently, get open shots that are less contested, so guys like Monte Morris could hit more efficiently, so these other guys off the bench could score more efficiently and have these better and more open looks. But that's what they're going to really need to do. That's going to be the game plan for this Denver Nuggets team, at least in my head, in order to succeed. Because so far what they've been doing has not been working. Like I said, the Utah Jazz had it at one point uh, – Last night's game, a 13-point lead. It was just a horrible fourth quarter in which they completely crumbled uh, to this Denver team. But they really, you know, take your opportunity now. This is a game six elimination game scenario. This is a team that needs to click on all cylinders. I agree. It's not going to help that Clarkson and Conley are putting up numbers. Uh you know what was very impressive to me last night? That Jokic had, I mean, what, what was it, Gabe? He had like 21 points in the first quarter and hit he yeah, was yeah, five uh, for five. Early on. He, yeah, he, he, he blew up early on, and then Jamal Murray took it home after that. Um, but Jokic starting strong, I mean, he, he is a matchup nightmare for the opposing team. And 
Den- uh, Utah, rather, they haven't showed me all series that they can cover the pick and roll. And with Jamal Murray using the pick and roll and then with Jokic using the pick and roll, Utah is struggling to switch or not switch or just have the right guy on uh, Jokic and Murray when they're when they're setting screens. They just get mismatches and they get wide open looks. There's a ton of miscommunication. And the same on the other side, uh, Utah runs a ton of pick and rolls with Gobert and, and Mitchell, and both teams seem to struggle a lot on defense. And that's why I think both of these teams are – it's a fun series to watch, but their defenses are just so painful sometimes uh, to watch because they make these silly mistakes. Yeah, uh, they, they definitely make a lot of errors too. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how game six is going to unfold. Uh, moving on to the series between the Rockets and the Thunder, I believe that's tied 2-2. Two to two. The Thunder have been holding their own, you know, I've got to say, and I think it's because of their X factor, which is Chris Paul. Uh, I know Shy Gilgis Alexander has been shining too. He's been scoring like 20, 30 points a game. Uh, I believe the defense is part of the reason as well. I think the Thunder are the better, have more size, and they're better defensively, which is why I actually picked them to win this series. You have the veteran in CP3 as where Harden's just trying to score points. They don't have Russell Westbrook back yet. And, you know, I just think the Thunder have been scoring really balanced. As I just mentioned, shy with the 31 points in game two, and then in game three, the Thunder pull one out in overtime. They could win late. They could win when the pressure's on and when it matters. And if you asked me before this season where the Thunder are going to sit, I wouldn't have told you they'd be sitting in the playoffs. I mean, there's a chance with who they have with, you know, uh, Chris Paul, Adams, those guys. But at the same time, it's just it's really hard to fathom how Dennis Schroeder is scoring 30 points a game. Didn't he have 29 points off the bench in game three? Like in what universe does that happen? Houston doesn't play defense. That's why they're undersized. They don't play defense. And OKC has done a phenomenal job of exploiting those types of matchups. They really have. And, you know, you saw in game three, which really could have been the closer, obviously wouldn't have ended the series, but it would have gave Houston that 3-0 lead, uh, forcing an overtime. And just Houston just just looked lost in the entire overtime. They got outscored 15-3 to in uh, that overtime period. But they just, James Harden, you know, James Harden takes a lot of hits on, you know, his ability to perform in the playoffs. I think that's the one knock that you could take away from what we've seen so far from him. He's actually played phenomenally. And something surprisingly is that he's been putting up the numbers that he's been putting up efficiently. Uh, Without a guy in Russell Westbrook on the floor as well, Russell Westbrook has not played a game. So to do what he's doing in that game three scenario, Eric Gordon shot horribly. I believe he shot eight for 24, shot two for 10 from the three-point line. That's your next best option. And like you said, Tom, they're an undersized team that doesn't – they're still running P.J. Tucker at the five, at 6'7". They're an undersized team. Uh, Jeff Green has come out of nowhere. He's been mainly the main contributor along with Austin Rivers off the bench for them. But Jeff Green has really taken into that role. I believe he had 22 points, uh, not game four, but game three, as as well as in game one, where he also put up a 22-point game or something along those lines. But like you said as well, the OKC Thunder – They've played very, very well. I know you were talking about Dennis Schroeder not expecting it. Dennis Schroeder, I believe, was is a top finalist for six man of the year. 
this year. I believe he's a top finalist, uh, you know, along with Montrez Harrell yeah, and Lou Williams. Williams. I, I obviously don't think he has the edge. Those guys have been fantastic. Not that he is not, but Dennis Schroeder has been a key six man, key contributor score for them off the bench this season. And we've seen that kind of late in these games, uh, game four, especially dropping 30 points coming off the bench. Uh, Shy Gilligas Alexander, I believe, had um, 18 the other night or something along those lines. Yep. Chris Paul had 26 uh, for them. They need those key contributors. They need those key defenders as well in there if they're going to win uh, against this Rockets team. Yeah, the Rockets, they play so many unrealistic games in the regular season where they're scoring hundred over, well over 100 points, hitting a ton of threes, just getting giant blowout leads super early, psyching out the opponent and then putting in their subs for the remainder of the game. And that happens so much with Mike D'Antoni's teams in the regular season. It's to win the game in the first half, and these games don't get won in the first half. It takes a whole game, and you're talking about a Rockets team that's the oldest team on average in the NBA. So having their minutes elevated, uh, you're seeing the injuries start to accrue for them. And playing small ball – Eric Gordon, I've never really liked Eric Gordon on the Rockets because he gets he's a great offensive player, but he just doesn't make a team all around better. And on a team like Houston, where they have enough scoring, they don't need another player who's just a scorer. And Eric Gordon has solidified his whole career that he's just a scorer, but won't do much else besides that. And his plus minus during the entire series has been awful while he's been on the court. They played a lot worse. So getting more P.J. Tucker and less Eric Gordon, that's the kind of players the Rockets need right now. That's really a fantastic point. You just brought up there, Gabe, about Eric Gordon. I couldn't agree with you more that he is just a flat-out scorer. I mean, he's small, I get it, but at least work at it. You know, If you're not going to be the best at it, just work at it so you can be a little better. It may help because you never know who's going to go down. We know Russell Westbrook is a game-time decision tonight with a quad injury. Uh, it was crazy, too, because Houston was up in the series 2-0, and now OKC is on a roll. They've won the last two. In particular, I know Harden scored a lot of points in this series, but he, that's because he's also shot the ball about 25, 30 times a game. He shot very poorly, despite all the points that he's scoring. Again, credit to OKC's defense. Game four, Schroeder scores 30 points, and the Thunder win by three. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And the impact CP3 has had on this team is fantastic. Uh, This just in, the Rockets game five tonight has been postponed due to the whole boycott situation. I'm not going to get too much into that, but they will not be playing game five. I think it's going to be – I think the fact that they're boycotting this, it's going to be interesting to see if this affects the outcome of the series at all. Right, because now Russell Westbrook has more time to heal up and get ready for a game five. What do you guys think about it in that regard? It'll definitely, I was thinking about that in the back of my mind too, because Russell Westbrook was uh, practicing today. So, you know, he was going to be playing tonight, but he was going to be definitely back potentially for a game six. But now with a postponement, you know, he could be ready and available for that game five uh, whenever the game is now uh, going to be played. That is yet to be determined. But you know, we'll see, but I think that's definitely a major factor into the Rockets potentially having success and overcoming, uh, you know, two unanswered games from this OKC team. 
Yeah, it'll, be, it'll be interesting how it plays out. The Thunder, they've been hot and the Rockets haven't been. And I think giving time off, it doesn't make – it won't necessarily give them uh, momentum, but it'll at least let them watch enough film, see what's been going wrong, uh, and then coaching. It's going to come down to coaching at the end of the day. Billy Donovan and Mike D'Antoni are two very similar uh, coaches experience-wise. Now we're going to transition over to the Eastern Conference. Before we get there, just want to remind all the viewers, listeners, watchers to like, subscribe, and follow this podcast on Facebook at Review and Preview Sports. Follow us on Instagram at Review and Preview as well. And this just in, all games have now been postponed for tonight. So I think it's kind of like, you know, uh, a monkey see, monkey do type of thing. The whole league is, that's probably. I guess that's the most fair way to do it. If one series is going to stop, you don't want to, I guess, give one team an advantage in that respect, if that makes sense. Uh, so, but I believe, I don't know, there were no games that played because there were only supposed to be two games played today, both at night. Uh, no, there were supposed to be three. The Bucks were supposed to play at four. That's uh, right. They postponed no, first. I think. No, it was 4.30 or 4, whatever it was, yeah. And then uh, the Rockets were scheduled to play at 6.30. I think the Lakers were scheduled to play at 9. Interesting. Yeah. But let's talk about the Milwaukee and Orlando series. I think this is a very interesting series. As you guys know, we had Dan Pfeiffer on last week, statistician of the Milwaukee Bucks. He was great to have. Uh, The bubble has affected Milwaukee. They haven't looked as good in the bubble. A team that was supposed to have home court advantage at Pfeiffer Forum, and now they don't have that. But I think... They've kind of overcome that adversity a little bit in the last three games. They really showed up in game two, Giannis with 28 and 20. And then one guy I really want to talk about, I don't have his jersey hanging today in the background, but is my guy Pat Connaughton, a guy who actually had coronavirus to come in and have 15 points, 11 rebounds off the bench for a guy who's 6'5 on a good day. He's not he's not even 6'5. He's out there getting 11 rebounds. It's more rebounds than Brooke Lopez gets. Ilya Sova, like all those bigger guys. He, he's really good with his vert. I've always loved his vert. And I think Brooke Lopez, too, stepped his game up. 20 points, 4 of 8 from downtown. What do we think about Milwaukee's role players and the impact they've had on this series? They're going to definitely have to be a consistent factor. You know, aside from Giannis performing the way he has been, we saw Chris Middleton kind of not be that effective player, that all-star, that three-point shooter, efficient three-point shooter, in which we've seen in the past, he really didn't come out until game three, game four scenario. Even though Milwaukee did come away with the win in game two, it was because, like you were talking about, Tom, you had the role players off the bench, Pat Connaughton, dropping 15 and 11. You had Dante DiVincenzo in 11 minutes score 11 points. You know, Giannis in that game as well, 28 points and 20 rebounds. Obviously, he's going to be the main contributor. He's the star. He's the potential MVP. We just saw him recently be crowned the Defensive Player of the Year award. But these other guys in the starting lineup have to become a more consistent factor. Eric Bledsoe needs to step up tremendously. You know, forget about this series alone, but if Milwaukee has those aspirations of potentially being a finals team or an Eastern Conference championship team, they need to start stepping up, especially in the positions of Eric Bledsoe more consistently, Wes Matthews more consistently, even Chris Middleton, again, like I said earlier, he really didn't show up and have that type of good game as a starter that we've seen in the past throughout the regular season, even as an all-star, in which we've seen in the past, until Game 3 and Game 4. Again, they came away with a win, 
But it makes you wonder, you know, what would this series be like if you had a healthy Aaron Gordon, which they have yet to have? If they had a healthy Jonathan Isaac, which is a defensive lockdown guy at the power forward position, center position potentially for the Orlando Magic, missing your backup center in Mo Bamba, what would this series look like? Michael Carter-Williams, too. Yep. What would this series look Four like? guys right there. Right. Yep. Look, I don't think it would have that type of impact where Orlando might win the series. I think Milwaukee would still win this series, even if yep. those guys were available. Um, but I think the Magic players have done a really good job at stepping up. You're right. Chris Middleton's been a disappointment. Bledsoe, he needs to improve as far as the score sheet. But, Kyle, I still think Bledsoe does the little things defensively. He's a lockdown defender oh, yeah. for a guy his size at 6'1". Yeah. And I think that's why he was able to stick around after his past few years in Kentucky, after being in the league for a few years after leaving Kentucky, and why a guy like Marcus T could not stick around because Bledsoe played defense and he passed the ball well. And then his scoring has improved throughout his time in the league. I think the biggest X factor wild card is trying to contain Nikola Vukovic because Vukovic has averaged 29 and a half points through four games in this series. I understand they're containing everybody else decently now. I know Ross is still getting his fair share. So is Gary Clark and DJ Augustine. But Nikola Vukovic, they have to find a way to slow him down. If they're going to wrap this up in five games, look, you know they're giving him the ball. This is an elimination game for them. Brooke Lopez needs to do a better job at getting his feet set defensively and that Vukovic doesn't get a first step on him because, quite frankly, Vukovic is a former All-Star and he is much quicker than a 32-year-old. Brooke Lopez guarding him at center. I mean, I mean, of course you want to stop the star, but I think that in a sense, the bucks are okay with giving up these big point nights to Vucevic because they know that's, that's their main option. That's their go-to guy. And yet they're still closing out, getting the victory by 15 points, 15 plus points on this Orlando team. So they're saying leave Vucevic open, don't defend him as hard, but make sure nobody else has a big night. And that's kind of what they've been doing. You know, these past two games, I think it was the same exact score, 121 to 106, but one game was 121 to 107. They've been giving Vucevic these numbers in which he's having, not to take anything away from these performances that he's been having. He's been fantastic as, as one of the sole reasons in which this Orlando team has still been competitive in this series. But I think they're almost okay in a sense. You know what I mean? With yeah. giving up as long as nobody else has a good game, they're okay with that because yeah, they haven't, I, you know, it's, it's been four games. They haven't been able to figure out a way to defend him yet. Yeah. I agree with Kyle on that. He's, he's not a point guard and he's uh, not a forward. He's a center. So if a center is getting all of these baskets, it doesn't necessarily create opportunities for other players. He's not driving. He is driving to the hoop, but he's not going to be an elite passer, kicking it out to the wing. Um, that Jokic ball vision. Uh, so there's a lot of games where Vucevic puts up big points and the Magic don't get results because he's not going to create as many opportunities as a point guard would. Totally. I completely agree. But I do think Milwaukee pulls out this series. I just think oh, the yeah. Vucevic thing is what's keeping Orlando on their last leg. Yep. Uh, Toronto and Brooklyn. Look, Gabe, I know you kind of like the Nets um, as as your team, but uh, Brooklyn was just outmatched throughout this entire series. They gave a valiant effort for who they have. I really liked what Luau Cabarro brought to the table 
And I know Joe Harris had to leave the bubble. That was rough on them. But game two, uh, Brooklyn didn't lose by much. They only lost by five points. But the problem is guys like Fred Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry, and Norman Powell, they couldn't defend those guards, guys. I think that was the difference maker because, again, Tyler Johnson, who they acquired, is just another scorer and passer. He's not a defender. And we know that through his years in Miami and Phoenix. Game three, Brooklyn gets blown out. Toronto shoots 48% from the field. Unacceptable how Serge Ibaka and Fred Van Vliet combine uh, nine for 13 from three. That can't happen. It's they're, they're leaving. If Serge Ibaka shoots three for three behind the three-point line, you're doing something wrong defensively in your game plan. That's not good. That should not happen. Um, and again, Tyler Johnson's your leading scorer, guys. Uh, there's no other way to it. Um, Kyle, I know he, you used to watch Johnson in Miami. You know what you're going to get with him. You're going to get scoring. That's yep. exactly what he is. So, yep. Definitely a dominant scorer when he gets hot. But it was, it was interesting to see what Nick Nurse did uh, with the lineup. I, I believe throughout the entirety of the season, at least as far as I'm concerned, I could be wrong. Don't quote me on this. Serge Ibaka was a starter in this lineup. You see him coming off the bench now to score some points more in the rotation, in that second rotation, and he's been fantastic. He's been averaging a double-double. Game one dropped about 22 points. This last game he dropped 27 and 15, I believe, something along those lines. The, the, this lineup for the, for the Raptors, you know, we talk about teams clicking. This is a team, yes, obviously the Brooklyn Nets, uh, missing guys left and right. Spencer Dinwiddie, Kyrie Irving, you know, you want to say Kevin Durant, fine. DeAndre Jordan, uh, Nick Claxton uh, as well. Um, I believe he didn't play for some of the games. He was their backup center uh, behind Jared Allen. But they were missing a lot of pieces. You know, they're, they're, they're really only solid piece that you could really count on from what you saw from the entirety of the series was Karis LeVert. And he was the guy that really carried this team offensively, even in the elimination game. I believe he dropped 35 points or something along those lines. So they did put up a solid effort. They put up a solid fight for what they had, you know, available to them. Timothy Luau Cabarro led the team in scoring, I believe, for two games. And this was a guy in which they brought on the team midway through the season. He did. Yeah, Gersavert, he, building on that, he was the nucleus of the offense this year. Without Dinwiddie, uh, he took most of the uh, most of the time coming up the court. It was Carousel bringing it up. He would call the plays. He would kind of create the direction of where the offense would go each possession. And a lot of the time, it became ISO ball, which is something that the Nets have fought, fallen into too many times. And Jared Allen, he has a good pick and roll, like drive to the hoop and can dunk it, but he doesn't have a great post up. Uh, His presence doesn't really help in a series like this because he's, he's got to come out to the perimeter so much with Marcus all. It doesn't, Marcus all isn't going to go. He doesn't go in the paint as much anymore. He likes to hang out and the Raptors just have so many guys who could shoot the ball and play both ways. They're, they're classic basketball players. They play defense. They play hard. And they're and they get uh they just dominated the Nets effort wise this series. I think it just had to do mostly with effort. I agree. I think if you give up 150 points in a playoff game, there's something wrong with your effort on defense. Yeah. I think regardless of who you have, who you have plugged into that lineup. Uh, perfect example: 150 points given up in 
game four, a uh, hundred of those coming from the bench, to be quite frank. Um, That's impressive. Most, any game ever since official starters began being tracked back in 1970. How do you get a, a hundred bench points against a playoff team? That shouldn't happen again. Uh, and I understand Kyle Lowry rolled his ankle. That was a little concerned. That's why the bench got some more points and you know, he only played nine minutes, but Serge Ibaka, 29 points, 15 rebounds again, made was a perfect 100% from downtown. That tells you something right there. Uh, Norman Powell, five threes, 29 points. The two of those guys right there combined for 56 points. Uh, look, it was definitely um, very interesting how Toronto was able to just manhandle the Nets, and I think that displays to you why Nick Nurse won NBA Coach of the Year award right before that game. He deserved it. I know Budenholzer was a deserving candidate. I know there were other guys in the mix as well. But overall, Nick Nurse took a team that lost their best player and everyone else just got better and picked up the slack that was left by that departing player in Kawhi Leonard. Spicy P was fantastic. Kyle Lowry uh, seems to get better with age in a sense. And then you have Fred Van Vliet now being inserted into that starting lineup very happy with this performance by Toronto. They were really great and they're going to move on and they're going to play the Boston Celtics. So that's going to be very interesting. Speaking of the Celtics, let's get over to them. They took care of the Sixers in four games. I know the Celtics did not have Gordon Hayward, but the Sixers also didn't have Ben Simmons. So a lot of people were saying that was even no, because Ben Simmons is your ball handler. He's your point guard. They had to start shake Milton compared to the Celtics who had to start Marcus smart. What end of the deal would you rather have right there? I'd rather start Marcus Smart over Shake Milton any day of the week. The guy balls out. He plays hard. He's a good defender. He'll get you scrappy points that other players won't. And that's why they won the series. I know Joel Embiid gave it his all. The guy doesn't like to lose. I get it. But, uh, again, if Boston's beating you by 27 points, that's an issue in, in game two. Tatum was great, knocking down eight threes. In game three, the same story. The score's a little closer but the Sixers shoot on their 30% from the field. They couldn't produce offense. And that's why I think getting guys like Al Horford in free agency wasn't the best for them. As I think now in the modern day NBA, Tobias Harris really should have been there for this year. And they should have gotten another player to stretch the floor. Tobias Harris has really been, uh, has really been disappointing. He, I think I read a stat line that in the playoffs, he has not scored more than 16 points in a game which, you know, for the money in which they're paying him, on top of the fact, you know, you, you backtrack about a year's worth of time. You got to remember this Philadelphia 76ers team chose to give Tobias Harris the money instead of Jimmy Butler. And, you know, we'll talk about Jimmy Butler in a minute and the impact on what he had. And, you know, this was alluding to the firing of Brett Brown. I don't know if you guys saw, but one of the main reasons was uh, to Jimmy Butler leaving. Even J.J. Redick leading, uh, leaving and going to the Pelicans was because they didn't feel that Brett Brown was the right guy, that he wasn't holding players accountable, and that he wasn't doing the right thing for the team. We saw the 76ers at their peak last year. A miracle shot in a Game 7 scenario by Kawhi Leonard is what eliminated them. And then even, even though you don't have Ben Simmons, you got swept. You got swept against this Boston team. You know, they're, they're a fantastic team, don't get me wrong, but you got swept. The Orlando Magic were able to pull a game away from the best team in the league right now with one of the best defenses 
in all of basketball, and they're missing two, three starters on their team, and they still managed to win one game. This team got swept, and that's just unacceptable. Joel Embiid, really nothing more that he could have done personally. Uh, Al Horford, I don't know what's going to happen with that. The, the Al Horford experiment has failed miserably, has failed miserably. Um, they traded one of their best up-and-ascending shooters in Landry Shamet to the Clippers, who is now on the uprising over there. Josh Richardson, I still love – I still think he's a fantastic player. I think that he needs to be in the right coaching situation. You know, you saw even him, a guy who's only been there for one year, uh, not to toot my own horn as a Miami Heat fan, but, you know, a guy – claiming that this coach doesn't have accountability when within the Miami Heat organization, that's all you see is defense, grind, discipline. That's the type of team that they run. That's the type of team that they are. And for a guy in his first year to, to realize that and make a statement amongst those lines, you, you have to know that it's somewhat to be true. And it's, uh, it's going to be really interesting. I know Elton Brand is remaining with the team as the general manager, um, but to see what they do going forward, because they have a lot of questions on this team, you know, if they want to compete over the next couple of years, you know, what piece, because there's going to be a piece that has to go. It's just a matter of which one will have to go. Well, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Oh, sorry, Tom. Uh, and yeah, you mentioned Alan Brand running the team. He played in a much different NBA where having a four and a five on the court was common, who both could go in the paint and Embiid, takes he Embiid ideally should be in the paint more and Al Horford and Embiid both not really the most aggressive big men in terms of wanting the ball in the paint they like to stretch the floor and use show their ability to shoot the ball it's just you got to get more of your your biggest presence in the paint shouldn't be your point guard sometimes it felt like Ben Simmons was their best paint player and it's just gotta come from more places than than him that's why brett brown got fired after his seventh season the real the realest chance they had was two years ago right because remember they lost reddick last season and then two years ago they lost guys like kylo quinn uh tj mcconnell dario Saric. they lost their really good role players their whole bench Saric was the ideal four player for them and they lost him to the phoenix suns and those players are not easily replaced because there was no bench in this series outside of Alec Burks. There was no bench at all to be found. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the last series that we're going to talk about is Kyle Russo's Miami heat against the Indiana Pacers. They took care of them in swelling fashion, the Miami heat. Uh, they dominated game two, Duncan Robinson leading scorer with 24 points, seven for eight from downtown and then Dragic with 20 as well. I know Oladipo and Brogdon, they really struggled in this series without DeMontis Sabonis and a banged-up Miles Turner who was playing. But, Kyle, you know, I got to tell you something. Dragic has done a really nice job filling in for Kendrick Nunn. I know Nunn is back coming off the bench, but talk about him and Duncan Robinson, his three-point uh, shooting ability and how that carried them in this series. This has been a team that has been – almost in a sense neglected by the NBA. They, they, they've just been the team there. They've been a team with a lot of guys that have come up and about, not really having you know, a set, set in stone type of future and have developed extremely well. You know, you look at the Duncan Robinson story. He was a D3 player, managed to go to Michigan, and now is arguably the most efficient. Or, you know, obviously, listen, I'm not going to say he's better than Steph Curry because that would be crazy of me, or even better than Clay Thompson. But this is a top five three-point shooter in the NBA right now. 
just a top five efficient wise three point shooter. I believe he had a 40, 50, 90 season, which if you don't know, 90% from the free throw line, 50% field goal overall, and then 40 plus percent from the three point line, which is absolutely insane for this kid who's only in his second season. He's in his second season putting up these numbers. Goran Dragic, you know, we talked about six men in the in the past and for this year. I thought that he should have been a candidate for six men of the year. He got left off the ballot. I believe he came in fourth place. But this is a guy coming off the bench that's been averaging 16, 17 points a game for you in the regular season, now coming in for a starter in place of Kendrick Nunn, and he's averaging 20-plus points a game. He's hitting clutch shots. I believe he had 13 or 16 points something along those lines, just in the first quarter of their last game, they've been fantastic. Bam and a bio. I can't give enough credit. You know, if, if you're somebody that believes in development, look at the story of Bam and a bio. A 13th or 14th overall pick back three years ago didn't really get an opportunity, was only averaging about six points and six rebounds a game, completely did a 180 on his entire career, and has now become a passer as the five. He's been one of the most efficient passers in the NBA as a big man in this league. Yep. And then just the addition of Jimmy Butler, you know, uh, the cream of the crop type of three and D type of player epitomizes the position, rough nose grinding type of player who gets the best out of you. And that's what I've seen from him in this series. You know, he hasn't shot the ball. Well, I'd be lying if I said he did, but he's been getting to the free throw line. The ability to know that you're not shooting the ball efficiently, to pass the ball more and get open shots, instead driving to the lane now and hitting from where you know you could hit efficiently, I believe 85 or 86% from the free throw line this season, Jimmy Butler alone shot 20 free throws in their last game, the final game. 20 free throws by one player. I believe in total he had between four games, I believe Jimmy Butler went to the free throw line or shot 50 free throws, 50 free throws attempts for one player. Crazy. Crazy. It's unbelievable. He knows how to get to the line, too. Uh, yeah. 20 free throw attempts in game three. Tyler Hero was really good off the bench in that game, too. Yeah. And then in game four, look, all these games are relatively close. The Heat won within about 10 to 15 points each game. It wasn't like Indiana gave up on, like, you know, a team like Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. But Or the Sixers. But I, I've got to say that – um, Indiana's bench was atrocious. I mean, they only had three bench points in game four. Um, that, and that was it. That was it. You know, Dragic was great again. Um, yeah. And then that led to Nate McMillan being fired today, which fun fact, just a couple weeks ago, he received the one year contract extension. So now Nate McMillan is gone. Two head coaches that got swept in the first round have been fired. Brett Brown and Nate McMillan. I think both of these firings, I think Browns was deserved more than McMillan. I think the issue with McMillan was the performance. They weren't able to score in the playoffs, and there was just no fight. I mean, Kyle, I know you probably watched the series more in depth, but overall I just didn't feel like the um, Indiana Pacers were probably competing to that level that they should. They should have won at least the game. I mean, they had – they had a lot going against them. You know, we talk about the 76ers and, you know, in a sense, the embarrassment getting swept, obviously missing Ben Simmons. But just what this Indiana Pacers team was missing, they were missing their all-star, their 20-15 and 15 guy in DeMontis Sabonis, who instantly would have been a game-changer. You know, I still think the Heat would have came out victorious, but I would have said six, seven games easily just with his presence. 
you know, missing Jeremy Lamb, who I believe scored 12 points for them off the bench consistently throughout the season was huge. Victor Oladipo going down in game one or game two with an eye injury after being only being on the court for eight minutes. That's another huge factor. Nate McMillan didn't deserve to be fired. I mean, yes, he has, he hasn't had the most success in the past, but granted, He's been faced up against the Cleveland Cavaliers and the LeBron-led Cleveland Cavaliers the last couple seasons, excluding last one. Uh, so you can't really knock them that much. You know, it's LeBron James you're losing to. But this this series, like I said, I think Miami would have come out and won this series anyway, but it would have been a six, seven-game series. Islanders tied up and going into OT. Whew, they were down 3-0 at one point, guys. Come on, Philadelphia. Do so. It's the only time I'll ever root for a Philadelphia sports team, man. Um, Impressive. Anyway, anyway um, th- thank you for that, James. Wish you could be here. Uh, three out of the four series in the Eastern Conference were four-game sweeps. It's crazy that the one and eight is the only game still in progress, uh, only series still in progress in the Eastern Conference. Now we're going to transition into some MLB updates. First off, congratulations to White Sox pitcher Lucas Giolito on a no-hitter last night. Uh, First no-hitter for the White Sox since 2012. The first no-hitter for the MLB in 2020. And the 19th no-hitter in White Sox franchise history. So congratulations. Nine-inning pitch, no runs, no hits, 13 strikeouts, and just one walk. Incredible performance last night. This White Sox team, you know, I believe I said in the beginning of the season that, you know, even prior to COVID, that this was going to be the team to look out for in the American League. Just the the players in which they brought in, um, bringing in a Dallas Keuchel uh, to the pitching rotation, uh, Lucas Giolito, what we saw from him last season, obviously, uh, now coming into his second season. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion is a bat. Yo Makata, uh, uh, Aloy Jimenez, um, Tim Anderson, who led the entire league in batting average percentage-wise, most efficient uh, bat in the entire MLB. Um, I'm trying to think of their rookie's name right now, who they have who's absolutely tearing it up right now for the Chicago White Sox as well. Um, he plays in the outfield. It's escaping my, uh, my mind right now. But this was a team that was on the, was on the come-up, and, and you're seeing that. They're performing, I believe they have a 19-12 and 12 record. In the AL Central right now, I could be wrong. I believe that's the case. They're second behind Minnesota, but they're in a good position right now, you know, and especially with this expanded playoff, you know, race, this is going to be a team that's going to be there and is going to compete and might even upset a team potentially because of just the way their lineup is built, completely even forgetting about Jose Abreu as well, who's also a fantastic first baseman still in the MLB uh, for the Chicago White Sox as well. This team is a good team. Uh, Yasmani Grandal at the catcher position. This team is a great team, and they're on the come up and definitely be out uh, on the lookout for them as the playoffs do approach soon. Were you referring to Lewis Robert, the rookie outfielder? Yes, that's who it was. Okay, yeah, I wasn't too sure. I just, uh, yeah, no, he's been good. He's he's been solid. I think the White Sox, huge improvement from last season, but. There's another guy I want to get to, and we pretty much all grew up with this guy dominating the major leagues. Gabe, I think even you probably know a lot about this guy, is Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols uh, broke 
uh, well, surpassed Alex Rodriguez on the all-time MLB RBI list with his 2087th RBI on Monday. So congratulations to Albert Pujols, the Los Angeles Angels designated hitter, still going strong in this league. He's been something else, man. He's been he's been the like ideal MLB player these last two decades. I mean, I just love watching him swing that bat. He's done everything right. You've never really heard a bad word about him. You know, uh, had some phenomenal years with the Cardinals moving over to L.A., you know, still putting up numbers at the age in which he's at right now in his career, and, you know, helping a team compete. And, um, and he's doing it the right way more than anything else. He's doing it the right way. You know, you look at some of the guys, forget about the RBI list. You look at the home run list and you look at some of the guys, I believe he's number eight right now on the home run list, Albert Pujols. And you look at some of the guys in front of him and you've, you've seen knocks against some of these other guys, but you've never heard a bad word about Albert Pujols and the job in which he's done throughout these almost 20 years of baseball play. So, yeah, you know, kudos to him. I keep it up and he can still play in this league at a dominant level. He can yeah. still... Especially in a especially in a division where you have the DH, you know, even if they don't want to play him at the first base position, he could DH for a while. Yeah. Another thing too, I want to say, been very impressed with Orioles rookie catcher Pedro Severino, uh, best average among catchers in the MLB. Fun fact. Um, then we have some early MVP candidates so far. It looks like Charlie Blackman and Fernando Tatis Jr. lead the way for the National League. It's going to be interesting how that pans out. I know Blackman's still hitting around 400. Um, probably a little far-fetched to finish with a 400 batting average at this point, but I do like what I've seen from him, and he definitely has the opportunity to win the batting title this year. Uh, you know, it's been crazy. The Dodgers and the A's currently leading the MLB right now. The Dodgers, again, you know, they're a team that they've had pitchers out. You know, David Price opted out. Uh, Clayton Kershaw was hurt. He missed some time. But these other guys that have stepped up, Walker Buehler, Dustin May, they've picked up the slack. They've done a fantastic job. And the A's as well. And I really like Chapman. All those guys, they've been doing a, a great job. We're already halfway through the MLB season. How crazy is that? How it's crazy insane. is that? It's insane to think that, you know, you know, right about now we'd be looking forward to the playoffs. But, you know, as crazy as it sounds, guys, uh, I would have to imagine midway through the season, and I'm almost positive this is the case scenario, an MLB trade deadline is, is almost in the session and will be happening very soon. As, uh, as the season does come to a close, I believe a trade deadline will be in play within the next week or two, considering that, considering that teams are more than halfway through their schedules already. Yeah, one thing I'll add to that is like the length of the season has always felt so long. I I personally kind of like how every game is has more meaning. Yeah, a rivalry game. Imagine playing your rival twenty times, thirty times a year. In general, it seems like playing them less amount. And this is a different setup because they only play their division guys. But in general, if you just shorten the season, every game, even rivalry games, would feel so much more important. And I, hopefully, they would maybe change in the future with how many games they play and cut it down a bit. I mean, 162 is definitely a lot. I mean, I don't see yeah. them nixing that many games off, but potentially something to look out for as, you know, um, as the years approach, uh, definitely. Later down the line, yeah. Yeah. Shane Bieber still looks like the best pitcher in baseball for the Cleveland Indians. And then, we you know, we've still seen a very small sample size of Jacob DeGrom 
and Garrett Cole. You know, they've missed some starts due to COVID restrictions via their team. Uh, speaking of the Grom, let's get into the Mets. So Subway Series was canceled last weekend due to two team members on the Mets testing positive. They were unable to wrap up their series finale against the Marlins. That game was made up in a doubleheader last night. Uh, the Mets resumed play yesterday. Tomas Nino and Andres Jimenez actually headed to the IL for undisclosed reasons. So if you're doing the math, those two, being that the reason is undisclosed, they may be the two that tested positive, uh, which in hindsight, the Mets called up catcher Patrick Mazika and their old friend, outfielder Juan Lagares, back up to the big league. So definitely very interesting. And they also brought up catcher Ali Sanchez. So a uh, little fun fact there. The Mets end up losing both games of their doubleheader last night in traditional New York Metropolitans fashion. Um, no no other way you can word that. It's just atrocious. They didn't score a run in either game. Now this is this is the Marlins, guys. You know, we were looking at the schedule uh, a week and a half ago, talking about on the show that if the Mets want to compete in such a intense and stacked division, you got the Phillies, the Braves, um, the Nationals, even the Marlins, you know, they're the Marlins, but they're, they've been playing decent. You got back-to-back shutouts against them. Come on. These are the games you got to win. Yeah. These are the games you got to win, and to not even put up a run in two games. The issue in this game, yes, the bats are an issue, but Rick Porcello was also an issue. The guy lasted, what, three innings? He drops the one and four on the year. He's been a terrible acquisition for the team. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't good. Uh, he only lasted three innings. And then in game two, it was no better. This was the makeup from August 20th, guys. Uh, they lost 3 nothing. Seth Lugo started. He was great in the three innings he played. He didn't give up a hit. He had a no-hitter through three innings, five strikeouts. Then they take him out for scary Jared Hughes. Uh, I say that because he has a scary-looking uh, roster photo if you look him up on the Mets. But, um, yeah, he came in relief and blew it as that led to a Brian Anderson uh, two-run hit. Hence why the Marlins uh, won that game 3 nothing, And then, of course, today, DeGrom on the mound against Hernandez. And then DeGrom actually now facing the Marlins for his third straight start. So it's definitely going to be interesting. And the Mets have not announced the pitcher yet for tomorrow night. So that is another fun fact so we'll see if the Mets can get it back on track they're sitting there at 12 and 16 nearly halfway through a lot of people predicted the Mets to win 36 games I know for sure I didn't I'm expecting them to finish around 500 will they make the playoffs with the eight team format uh there's still the chance because their division isn't very good but the problem is they're one of those teams also that are not very good the Mets, Nationals, and Phillies have all been struggling right now. It's been the Marlins and the Braves at the top of that division, guys. Oddly enough, you got to give credit where credit is due. Don Mattingly has been fantastic uh, coaching up those uh, young guys. But, uh, yeah, and then the Subway Series will finally happen this weekend. So what the way the schedule came out, this was supposed to be part two. They were supposed to play two weekends in a row last weekend and now this weekend. But part two has now become part one. And the Mets, fun fact, not so fun. The Met, they have not won a Subway Series since 2013. That was my senior year of high school. Uh, not to show you my age there, but, um, yeah, not good. Um, and then 
actually they did sweep the Yankees for nothing that year. But speaking of the Yankees, let's get to them. Kyle, the frustration's about to pour out. They're 16 and nine. They lost their last two games to the Rays. They cannot beat the Tampa Bay Rays. Three games to the Rays. Three games to the Rays. Uh, They have lost six out of the nine losses this season. Six of them belong to the Tampa Bay Rays. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I I couldn't tell you. I, I would have to accrue some of the losses. The Yankees, as they have played very well this season, obviously not against the Rays, I would have to defend in one sense because of the cards in which they've been dealt with the doubleheaders. The doubleheaders have killed them. I'm watching it right now. They are losing 4-0 to the Braves in a doubleheader situation. They played the first game at 4-10. They'll be starting the second game at 7-10. These doubleheaders are absolutely killing them. On top of the fact that they haven't played a game, this is their first game now in almost a week. So you have a week off of time, basically. You haven't played. Garrett Cole came out today. Although he's let he, although he's let up four runs, although he's let up four runs, he threw nine strikeouts today in five innings. He was good as far as I was, as as far as I'm concerned. But the bats have not been there. The bats have just not been there, and we've seen that in the Rays series as well. Um, I believe the last game in which they lost to the Rays, they lost five to ten. You know, the, and you know the injuries. Oh my goodness, the injuries. You know, thank goodness Aaron Judge is coming back. At least somebody's coming back. They have piled up with all of their all-stars on the IL, all of them. Well, it's Luke Voigt and everyone else, and this is probably the reason why Garrett Cole will lose his first start of the season today because the Yankee lineup can't produce runs for him and bail him out when he has a bad start. You know, similar field to the Mets when the Grom doesn't pitch well, he doesn't have the offense to bail him out or back him up. I don't even like using the term bail out. I don't think that's really an appropriate term support. I think, or support. to support him. Yeah, you want to give the pitcher run support. And look, I know the Yankees have been making some moves this week. They acquired uh, Rob Brantley from San Francisco today. He reports to the alternate training site. They made a trade over the weekend. They traded David Hale to the Phillies. Remember, they sent them down a week or two ago to get Addison Russ, a relief pitcher who I think is going to be pretty good for them. Uh what do you think his role is in this bullpen? I think he could be a nice, solid seventh, maybe eighth inning guy. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what his impact could be potentially because you look at the team in the Phillies and you say to yourself, well, they don't even have a good starting bullpen. So for them to trade away one of their, I guess you would say, better prospects at that position to the Yankees, you know, what kind of role is this guy going to potentially fill? I think he'll get – He'll get maybe a seventh or eighth inning potentially, maybe even a sixth, uh, sixth inning if somebody gets shell-shocked early in the game, only lasts three, four innings, something like that. But for a team that doesn't have a very good bullpen themselves to give up, potentially this guy in which they're talking about is a, a great bullpen type of player, it'll be interesting to see what he brings to this Yankees team. But they they need something to go right for them. They've, they have been probably at this point in the season the most injury-plagued team. At this point, uh, DJ LeMahieu, Brett Gardner, Glaber Torres, Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, Chad Green at some points, uh, James Paxton, Tanaka at yep. some points. Who else? The list goes on and on. You get the point. It's it's terrible. But and especially you know, Gabe, you were bringing it up before, comparing you know a 162 game regular season to 60 game season. Every game matters. Every game matters. Am I worried about them? No, but. 
I'm kind of worried about the placement in which they could potentially have due to these injuries. They might not win the division potentially. You know, six losses, six out of their nine losses are to their division rival now in the Tampa Bay Rays, who are now winning the division by, I believe, four games or something like that. It's not really four games, but it's because of the fact that the Yankees have been in the midst of being behind on schedule, missing the Philly, uh, Philly series early because of the whole debacle with the Marlins, and now with the Mets series because the Mets uh, had two positive COVID testings as well. But it could potentially impact their seeding, and that could potentially hurt. Maybe a first-round scare potentially that you don't want to see. And, uh, you know, hopefully they get healthy soon because they're going to need everybody. They're going to need everybody. They don't have enough time to make these mistakes like you do in a 162-game season. That's 100% for sure. And fun fact, uh, Ian Anderson making his first career MLB start today against the Yankees. Through five and two-thirds, just one run, one hit, six strikeouts. It was the home run to Luke Voigt. Other than that, he has been clean. Yep. So uh, definitely good for him. And then the nightcap tonight, it's going to be Hernandez. Uh, I'm sorry, not Hernandez. It's going to be uh, Tanaka against Max Fried, who is the Braves' ace right now over Soroka. So, yeah. Not it's good. Gonna be, uh, it's going to be very interesting. But let's move on to some hockey for the last 10 minutes of the show. Uh, we'll get that banner up. The NHL playoffs are in full swing, and round two is now underway. Uh, before we get there, just want to say quick shout out to former Capitals defenseman Mike Green. He was at Edmonton Oiler last, and he just retired today after 15 years in the NHL. And another breaking news, the Arizona Coyotes, uh, Coyotes sorry, lose their 2020 second round pick and their 2021 first round pick due to a league investigation regarding their violation of combine testing policies. So I don't know too much as to what this is about, but it's definitely not good for a team that's right on that playoff um, line. Like they're right there. They're right on that bubble. And this definitely derails their advancement a little bit because they 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 were competitive this year. I thought even in the games that they that they lost, so it's definitely concerning. I mean they they have a they have a whirlwind of an off season to be taking place. Uh, obviously, trading for Taylor Hall midway through the season, he's going to be a free agent, one of their best players. Phil Kessel, an aging player. Um, the last two games of this series, Darcy Kemper, who looked like one of the best goalies in the NHL. Uh, winded up losing in back-to-back games. Even Auntie Ranta had to come in both games three and four, I believe it was, or four and five, and they lost both of those games to Colorado seven to one. Both games seven to one, and then their GM as well. I believe their GM at some point during this bubble series had quit, had just walked away from the team. They have a lot of things to address in this offseason, and to have something like this happen, it's not. It's not a good look. I agree uh, 100%. It's definitely been interesting for sure um, as what will happen with Coyotes. But let's get into some of these second-round matchups. First off, the Vegas Golden Knights, number one seed against the Vancouver Canucks, the five seed. They're tied one-to-one. The Canucks got here beating the defending Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues, in five games. Um, 
the Canucks in game one, they just had 26 shots on goal and Vegas won that five, nothing. So, you know, it seemed like Vegas is on a good track. They're going to roll them over. Not so fast. The Canucks come back to win game two, five to two. So Foley had a goal and three points in that game. Really good effort from him. I really like what I see from Mar- uh, Markstrom as well. Game three will be tomorrow. So that'll be interesting to watch for sure. Um, and then this just in from James Montefusco. Flyers take game two in OT. Nicely done, Philadelphia. So, uh, you know, putting up a fight just like Rocky would. Flyers take game two. Um, Gabe, I know you're somewhat neutral here, but uh, how do you feel about the Islanders yeah. playoffs? I'm rooting. I'm definitely rooting for the Islanders. I want them to go all the way. I mean, they they deserve some recognition for decades now. They've been in the shadow of the Rangers, and be nice to see them go far. I was shocked to see them beat the Caps. That was that was wild, and they have so much talent, and they have a great coach. Their goal is Grice and Varlamov. Actually, they weren't really that great the last few years until this year they really just like came out of nowhere and just played amazing and everybody's just elevated their game uh and they've gotten they have a really like experienced team too a lot of older guys that have been there before good character players and they're just a fun team to watch barzal is my favorite player to watch the the guy would probably could have played any sport and been good at it he's just a natural graceful athlete I agree. The Islanders definitely deserve to be here. Barry Trotz is a fantastic head coach, and I think that played a big part in them upsetting the Capitals. I don't even know if you call it an upset, to be honest, because the season basically just restarted. Uh, But before we get there, just want to recap the other Western Conference matchup. Uh, Dallas leads their series against the Stars 2-0. So the uh, Avs are on the brink. Uh, down to nothing, the number two seed in the West. Game three will be tonight at 10.30 p.m. Um, it's crazy because the Stars, I believe they were down two nothing in game two, and then they score five unanswered with four in the second period. So the Avs got to find a way. Nate McKinnon and those guys, they got to get back on track. But we head into the Eastern Conference to recap Philadelphia and New York. The Flyers beat the Canadians in five games to get here, and the Islanders took care of business against the Caps in five games. Uh, This led to Capitals head coach Todd Reardon being fired on Sunday. Uh, Not sure who takes his spot, if it's the end of the road for Alex Ovechkin, if he comes back and continues to play for the Capitals. I'm not quite sure. With new coaching regimes, sometimes they look to clean house a little bit. So hopefully we get to see Ovechkin play some hockey next year. Uh, I think I think you'll yeah. definitely see him playing in a Capitals uniform next year. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Brandon Holpe, um, as he is an older goalie in this league, and um, he didn't perform up to expectations. You got to remember, this is a team in the Capitals who are two years removed from a Stanley Cup, you know, championship, and they've been knocked out in the first round back to back years since Todd Reardon had taken over, um, and obviously Barry Trotz leaving as well. Um, but they need they they have the talent. The talent is there. They need the right coach, and I think that you're going to see them figure out their situation this offseason. They'll have time off uh, to rest before. I think the NHL starts back up again in December. You'll see hopefully a new coach by them, a more established coach, um, take this team to that once high level at which they were at just two years ago. 
Matt Masterson says hello, Gabe. <laughs> oh, man. Man, what's up, Matt? He's a big <laughs> Giants fan. He probably isn't happy about the McKinney injury. No, it's no, tough. me neither for it's sure. But Kyle, you bring up a lot of good points there about Ovechkin. And the Islanders in game one, they really looked unstoppable against the Flyers. They won 4 nothing. Varlamov got his second shutout, third of his career. And fun fact, he becomes the only New York goalie with consecutive playoff shutouts, as James felt the need to put in parentheses on the script. Yes, yes, yes. Does that include New Jersey too? Uh, I don't think so. Just the okay. Rangers and the Islanders. Flyers really had no answers uh, for the Islanders. They had to pull their goalie. I believe Carter Hart started in net um, with seven minutes left in the third. And Varlamov, he was just 40 seconds away from breaking Billy Smith's team playoff record. Oh, Oh, they let up an early goal? They did. Oh. So uh, game two was at 3 p.m. today. They lost 4-3 to Philadelphia. The Islanders, they were down 3-0 in the first period, and then they come back to score three straight, one in the second, two in the third by Bavillier and Peugeot, who they acquired from Ottawa, I believe, at the deadline. And then Myers scores the game-winning goal in OT to even this series locked up at one. So there's a real chance the Islanders could advance to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think both these series are going to be very competitive. The series that I'm most intrigued by is actually Boston and Tampa Bay, which we're going to get to now. That's tied at one as well. And this is more because of the performance that Tampa Bay had in the playoffs last year. Now they're very battle-tested. They got past Columbus, a team they got swept by last year, uh, winning in five games this time. But Boston also beat Carolina in five games, a rematch from last year's Eastern Conference Final. In game one, it looked like the Bruins were, you know, doing pretty well, that they were going to have a good time in this series. They scored a goal in every period, uh, winning 3-2. to two. And then Halak was great. I think he's been beautiful in relief of Tuka Rask, who had to opt out, unfortunately. Hedman uh, did score twice in the game for Tampa Bay. But overall, I really like what I've seen from Halak in this series. It's in this series, the X factor is going to be Steven Stamkos whenever he does return. He has not played a game in this series, but I think his offensive capabilities, you know, they're pretty evenly matched. They, they, both teams got great coaches. They have pretty good goalies, obviously. Andre Vasilevsky for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, Yaroslav Halak uh, is, has kind of evolved his game um, in a Bruins uniform uh, since departing from the Islanders. Uh, and obviously the three-headed monster, Patrice Bergeron, uh, Brad Marchand, and David Pasternak is fantastic. But Steven Stamkos coming back for this offense for, Tam- for the Tampa Bay Lightning, whenever he does come back, can potentially be the game changer. And, you know, we'll see. I think it's definitely a six, seven-game series that we got to look out for with both these teams. I agree. Um, Gabe and Kyle in game two, Tampa Bay, obviously they would come back to win. Uh, four to three in overtime, similar to the Flyers today against Phil- uh, against the Islanders. Blake Coleman, two goals for Tampa Bay. They acquired him from the New Jersey Devils at the deadline. He's been a nice addition. Brad Marchand was good, but uh, Palat with a game-winning goal for the Lightning. Great to see. Game three will be tonight at 8 p.m., but the Lightning will be without one of their top defensemen in Ryan McDonough. He will miss game three due to an undisclosed injury. The former Ranger, whose jersey you might see in the background next to Jacob DeGrom. Uh, final thoughts, guys? Good show to uh, good show today, guys. I oh, lost my 
trying to thought there for a minute. But we had a great interview today with Matt Perino, uh, Buffalo Bills beat reporter. Uh, a great insight upon this AFC East team and which can potentially rule this AFC East, this division, for the next five years, as we talked about earlier in the show. Some great content with the NBA playoffs, as well as, well as with baseball, along with some NHL playoffs to round us out to the top of the hour, guys. Gabe. Yeah, I loved coming on today. I'm excited for the sports is only going to get better from here on out. The games are going to get more meaningful and each game is just going to be even better than the last. Uh, the bills are sneaky dangerous. I, I agree with all you guys. And what we came to the conclusion is kind of that this team has insane amounts of talent uh, for a team that now is playing in a division without the Patriots being who the Patriots have been. It's going to be dangerous. I, I I would put my money on the Bills to go pretty far in the AFC this year. First time in a while, I would like to say I'm excited to watch uh, some Bills and Patriots games. We'll get two of them this year, so definitely excited for it. Kyle, uh, Nick Markakis just drove another run home. Atlanta leads 5-1 to one over Great. the Yankees. Uh, sorry, Great. I have to end it on that note. But quickly, we'll preview next week's show at our new time. Wednesday, 7 to 9 p.m., we are moving back to a later time, but we'll keep it on this day, uh, 7 to 9. So be there. Our Team of the Week segment will be returning. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, We have that at the top of the hour, halfway through the show. And Gabe will actually – you will be joining the Review and Preview staff. You will be doing a separate show for us as a part of our brand extension. So welcome to the team, and we look forward to – you putting out some more content. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'm excited. I can't wait to just talk all day about <laughs> sports. I I've, haven't been able to talk and release uh, all that pent up, uh, like just had not having the ability to talk about sports for so long and now getting back into the game, so to speak. It's nice to have that release from the stress of everyday life. <laughs> Definitely. And we're looking forward to all of that. On behalf of Kyle Russo and Gabe Flayton, I'm your host, Tom Scavetta, saying so long. You've been watching Review and Preview here on Facebook Live. Good night, everybody.